Hello everybody and welcome to the Cane and Rinse podcast. It's volume 11, issue 510. And today, in a slight change to the format, rather than a game or series of games, we're going to be talking about one man. Actually, I suppose we are still going to be talking about a series of games, but they are all going to be by one man and his uh, collaborators, particularly uh, one in particular who we'll talk about. The man is Jeff Minter. And if that name means nothing to you hopefully it will in two and a half hours time and if it does mean something to you well hopefully this will just act as a celebration of his life and career and work joining me leon cox in this issue we have chris o'regan hello i can't quite see what's going on but it sounds looks pretty awesome but anyway carry on (laughs) i see what you're doing uh we have jesse fuchs uh I should say at the beginning of this episode that I will be moderately stoned out of respect. (laughs) (laughs) And listening to Pink Floyd. We also have Chris Worthington. I'm not looking at flashing lights or taking drugs. Good evening. (laughs) Well played, sir. And also another guest from elsewhere, more of which later. We've got Sean Bell coming back. Am I the only straight edge person on this show? <laughs> no, no, no. Well, I'm, I'm. I mean, I, I am straight edge these days, and yeah. I've always been fairly straight edge. But that's uh-huh. not to say. Anyway, I mean, I, yeah, I'm not going to get arrested for past crimes. But, um, <laughs> but let's put it this way: I'm, I'm straight edge enough that I have never sat down and done LSD or mushrooms and played a Jeff Minter game. Put Fair it that enough. way. Jeff Minter. Now, normally when you start doing a biog. Uh, you read out the person's full name. So I was expecting it to be like, I don't know, Jeffrey McIntosh Minter or something. (laughs) But I I don't know if he's got, if there's any more to his name. I don't even know if he's a Jeffrey. He is known only, as far as I know, as Jeff Minter. Unless anyone's got any advance on that. That's other, obviously, other than his his pseudonyms. Who is he, if you don't know? He is a, a veteran British developer, Born in Reading in 1962, and the reason we're doing this podcast now is because at the time of the release of the free version of this podcast, it will be his 60th birthday, give or take a few days. He is famous for his passion for the Golden Age era arcade games, the early 80s stuff in particular. He is also famous for his passion for psychedelia, and he is also famous for his passion for ungulates and ruminants, (laughs) more of which later. Telepri from our forum probably echoes a few of our listeners thinking as we go into this show. I've only played a few Jeff Minter games as far as I know. I remember having an Atari collection on CD when I was little and Tempest was one of my favourites on it. I guess that was Dave Toyra's Tempest rather than Jeff Minter's, but obviously there's a there's a connection. I don't know, continues Telepri, that I understood it very well, but the perspective, style and level design transfixed me. Years later, quite possibly via someone on the Kane and Rinse team or forum, I found TXK on the Vita and very much enjoyed it. I don't have much more to say other than those games are delightful. I love abstract neon geometry in space. Also, I followed him for a time on social media and watching him care for his sheep is a joy. I'm excited to listen to this episode and learn more about him. Yeah, I think uh, I watched one of the, the talks he's done 
about the history of Llamasoft, his software company, and he was sort of saying it, it obviously does rankle with him that he gets no, he gets referred to as the Tempest guy because he's made some games which are obviously heavily inspired by Tempest. But he did point out that only five percent of his life's output has been Tempest type <laughs> games, and one of those was Space Giraffe, which he doesn't even consider a Tempest type game. But you know, we'll debate that later. Um, he uh, he didn't create the original Tempest. That was an arcade game. Uh, when he was still making games for the ZX80 and VIC-20 and things like that. So anyway, what I want to hear about uh, is really what do we think, what, how do we feel, what do we think about when we think of or hear the name Jeff Minter? Let's start with our own Chris. There's, <clears throat> historically, I'm quite old, um, about one of the oldest hosts on this show, and... Uh, when I think of Jeff Minter, the initial gut reaction is Commodore 64, because he made loads of them, really amazing games, on that particular machine. True. And I still remember playing Attack of the Mutant Camels, because that's, that's a thing, and thinking, oh, wait, he's replaced the sprites from Empire Strikes Back with camels. This is brilliant. <laughs> and it's, there's way more to it than that. But really, he does definitely, I didn't realise at the time, but he's really great at taking exceptional arcade games or similar and twisting them and turn them into something different and new. And that's really, for me, what he does. He's now, later on in the year, so that's my initial early thoughts, like Commodore 64 games. But then, subsequent to that, I sort of almost became reacquainted with his work when Space Giraffe uh, appeared all those years ago mm. on the 360. And uh, you just realised that he is really chasing that pure arcade experience, which is often, uh, a phrase is often used, not really understood. It's more like a point-chasing exercise while also uh, rewarding skill and dexterity. That's really his cornerstone, his, his trademark, if you like. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing. He wrong speaks with of that. his desire to get people in the zone, yeah, uh, mm. audio, visually, kinesthetically, sort of in that locked in that place where everything else fades away, and it's just you and the game. And that does that has been happening for the last week or so. We've been playing his <laughs> titles. Mm. So yeah, that for me. But so there's two things really. It's I know you probably didn't want to hear that, but initial one is Commodore 64 because that's my emotional sort of historic link to. To Jeff, I know he's played and he's made games on many, many platforms, but that's the one I always are drawn to. And he's made some amazing, very strange, and very entertaining titles on that platform. And then the the purest sort of like you know the that get um, attaining that Zen like experience in an arcade yeah. game. There you go. Cool, Jesse. How about you? What do you think of when you think of Jeff? Um, I mean, I think of psychedelia. I mean, I've been yeah. you know playing his games uh, over the last week and. Uh, uh, my history with it is uh, basically came across him in the 90s. Uh, I don't think his right. uh, games, they, they came over here to some extent uh, when Hessware mm. was a big company for about 16 months. Uh, he was their big seller, but they went bankrupt very quickly for a variety of reasons, not having to do with him. Um, and I think just his distribu distribution over here and the entire, you know, there, there's a surprising amount of separation between US and UK games in the 80s despite the yeah. fact that they shared the Commodore and, uh, you know, there's no translation necessary, maybe remove the occasional U or whatever. Uh, 
but it really, I guess, is the diskette versus cassette thing to some extent. So I didn't, <laughs> don't, th I mean, I may have seen ads for Attack of the Mutant Camels or something, but I think really it was like Next Generation Magazine trying to find nice things to say about the Jaguar uh, <laughs> that really kind of put them on my radar and I picked up a Jaguar uh, at probably some point in 1995 because I got it on not eBay because of course that didn't exist but like Usenet the equivalent of eBay on Usenet and I, as I think I've mentioned on the Amiga episode and other episodes I was always kind of a vulture uh, or a hyena you know some some form of scavenger where you you, you smell death and you pounce uh, and so I picked up a Jaguar for like $90 with you know 12 games or something from someone who was just tired of it and I had a great time with it uh, I like Cybermorph. I very much like Iron Soldier. Uh, but definitely the reason uh, I picked it up was to play Tempest 2000. Uh, and I played just the absolute hell out of that game. Uh, and it was definitely the game that convinced me to hook up. Uh, my, my I had a decent stereo system with a subwoofer. It was normally in my bedroom and I brought it out to the living room uh, because, you know, Tempest 2000 deserved it. Um, and certainly when friends would come over, um, and we were hanging out or, you know, uh, it, it was, it was kind of one of the games I would definitely go to in terms of, uh, uh, you know, showing someone a laser light show. Uh, it, uh, I knew people in college who had entire laser light shows made out of like bongs and Christmas lights and the soundtrack to Flash Gordon. Uh, <laughs> there's this, you know, entire just kind of like, Hey, we're going to, uh, get stoned and hang out. And like, I don't know, I have this video, a fifth generation dub video of weasels, uh, doc in a documentary with Ornette Coleman dubbed over the soundtrack, and I got Tempest 2000. Which one are you up for? Um, and yeah, you know, I always would keep tabs on him. I was very interested in his iOS games, but he didn't really come back into my consciousness until, uh, you know, other than sort of a generalized, you know, strong respect. Uh, but mm. when Polybius came out on PSVR, uh, I'm a big uh, fan of that system, and I was very excited to see because I had. We'll, we'll get into the details, but, you know, I enjoyed his games, about, uh, and especially Tempest 2000, but I also then got Defender 2000, and I found that game difficult to mm -hmm. see through the see through the action, etc. And that, <laughs> that has been my reaction to, you know, I played a little Space Giraffe at a friend's, but it, it oh, was yeah. like, this is very interesting, but um, I'd, I'd need <laughs> to play this longer to feel like I was having uh, agency. Um mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I got really into Polybius. I think that's a, a really impressive game. Um, and uh, yeah, and then he released Moose Life, and I've played a, a decent amount of that. Uh, and I'm, I'm very much looking forward to seeing what he does next. Uh, yeah, as always. Chris Worthington, W, how about you? Uh, what's your, what are your overriding feelings when you think of the developer, Jeff Minter? So for me, I think of him as the coder's coder. The guy who <laughs> lives to code machines. Yeah. He is, I think, one of the last of the great pioneers who were coding for home micros right back at the start. We're never, ever going to get another time where a 16-year-old guy in school can walk into the wrong room and find somebody hunched over a machine <laughs> which has a monitor and a keyboard, and they won't even know what the thing is. <laughs> How does he describe it? An old typewriter with a TV yeah. on top? <laughs> I think he's, he's described it. That changed his life. And we're never going to go back to that kind of innocent time. Jeff Minter was there then 
1980, 79, 80, whenever that yeah. was. Mm-hmm. And he's actually here now, 40 years later, doing exactly what he was doing back in 1980, <laughs> yeah. just yeah. just with infinite more power. And and when I think of, of Jeff, I actually, I, I do think of his classic games, but I actually think his best work, in my opinion, his, my, well, my favourite of Jeff's games are those yeah. which he's released in the last 10 years. And I actually yeah. think possibly his best is still yet to come. Because mm-hmm. when you listen to Jeff speak, he's a very—he's actually quite a, a quiet chap. And he, I think the guy who did the Heart of Neon documentary, whose name escapes me now, describes it perfectly. He'd say he, he hasn't got a lot to say about many things. But when he talks about mm. coding and, and, yeah. and designing games, he comes alive. Yeah. And I think... Yeah, a bit savant-like in that respect. I, it, absolutely. And I, I think his best is yet to come. If you give Jeff... Look, who, who else made good games for the new one? It was... It was, it was Jeff. <laughs> yeah. Everyone else was making games for the PlayStation where they could code in C. Yeah. Jeff was dancing on the metal or dancing on the copper, as he describes it. <laughs> and I think he's he's a marvel, and I can't wait to get into some of the detail about what he's produced. Yeah, yeah. He said uh, the Neon was just about the hardest machine to code for ever. I don't. I'm not <laughs> sure if he ever tried to uh, make anything on the Saturn, but it sounds like it was twice as hard again to, to develop for the Neon set top. And he loved it. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it was it gave his brain a workout, right? Yeah, yeah. Sean, uh, how on. about you? So you're you're the straight edge guy. So you yes. haven't been uh, playing Jeff's games, you know, for the uh, for the <laughs> trippy of them. Or maybe well, you have. I mean, maybe, and, you know, maybe those of us who are more straight edged kind of get something of that psychedelia from. Well, them. well, this is the thing because I was. Um, I mean, so I think overall my trajectory is um, similar to Chris or Egan's, um, but I was four years old when I played uh, Revenge yeah. of the Mutant Camels. Um, yeah. It was one of the few games that we actually bought for the Commodore 64. You know, it was, it, pretty much yeah. everything else was a, a cover mount. Oh, um, you know, back in the day well, where it didn't really... Playground Pirate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, everything just came with Commodore format or, or Zap or whatever. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it didn't matter that all the games were five years old because you didn't know any better. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, so even, like, at that age, um, yeah, playing Revenge of the Mutant Camels, not even knowing that it was a sequel... Um, like already you know having only played about 10 or 15 games in my entire life already having a sense that like oh this is weird this is (laughs) this is not quite like anything else i've seen um and and just the fact that that has continued throughout like you know literally my entire life as far as i can remember it he's so consistently just done stuff that no one else was quite doing and that just at a glance sort of is quite I don't know, not you would, stuff that you would think is impenetrable, right? At a glance, yeah. but as as we will get into, that's that's not quite the case. Um, but no. yeah, so basically, I was I was there for the sort of that that sort of C sixty four era. Obviously, memories of it are somewhat hazy now, um, and then sort of skipped, uh, you know, quite a few generations, and then yeah, and then it was like I think Grid Runner Plus Plus was one that I got mm. into because he released it for free eventually, didn't he? Um, Right. Was it and shareware type? I think yeah, I think it was a shareware thing. And I remember I mm. like suddenly got right into that. I was like, oh my god, this is so cool. Like, you know, this this guy's still doing like, you know, the same stuff, yeah. but in like, yes. but he's moved on, you know, he's he's um and then yeah, and then like straight into Space Draft. Um, which I think is an all timer. Mm. Um and yeah, so it's that again, sort of that similar trajectory to Chris in that I sort of fell away 
for a bit and then sort of came back for space draft um and then you know and, it, and then they had the whole sort of it, it took to smartphones quite quickly didn't he, he sort of that was yeah. quite fertile ground for him for a time um and i played a few of the ios ones he put out um cool. and then txk and then bit of polybius as well um so yeah he's just he's Thanks. always been a, a welcome presence um yes. in a way that's sort of hard to quantify but yeah that's exactly how I feel. The presence, yeah, it does go back to the mid-80s for me. I became aware of his existence. I can't remember exactly which I was aware of first, but a sort of haze of memories around uh, reading a Commodore user magazine because even before I had a computer of my own, my Atari 800 that I've mentioned before, or around that time I would buy other format magazines when I could to just because everything was so exciting and I was jealous of the stuff I couldn't play. And I remember reading, I think, a... I think it was a, re- a Mastertronic re-release of Grid Runner for the VIC-20 in mm-hmm. Commodore user or CMVG or something like that. And they were talking about Jeff Minter. Uh, and, so, you know, there were named known name developers back then, but his name was always front and centre of, of whatever he was doing. Mm-hmm. He would normally get name checked in a review. And even if he didn't, you would know that it was his work because it was so distinctive, <laughs> mainly because it was probably it was probably an original twist on an existing concept but stuffed full of animals and uh, eccentric British humour. Um, I remember Colour Space being talked about, the the light synthesizer. We'll talk a bit about that as we go through his softography, a sort of uh, a history of making software which is just designed to look at or enhance other experiences either musical or uh, narcotic whichever you prefer or a bit of both perhaps um and then i started when i started buying games for my own atari computer i ended up buying those mastertronic re-releases of games that had already come out on the atari like attack of the mutant camels and hover bother and revenge and um and yeah, so from that point on, he was uh, he was known to me and I would sort of follow his career with interest. I never had a C64, so I missed out on a lot of that really fertile era of particularly interesting and diverse games that we'll, we'll talk about. The other thing I remember about Jeff is that um, although I knew he was a, a regular presence at shows and events and things like that, and he's generally, um, you know, generally a friendly and affable guy. He's also got quite an edge to him. And I remember even back in the very first interview, I think I read with him in Zap64. And this was a magazine, bear in mind, that he'd already written a developer's column for called Yak's Progress. They'd reviewed some of his games incredibly glowingly, such as Iridis Alpha. I think they gave like a 95% Zap Sizzler or something <laughs> like that. But there was one game, and I can't remember, I think maybe it was Battalix. Oh, yeah. It was one of his games of that era that Zap hadn't taken to. They and, did like Basilix uh, Leon. That was one that they did like. I think it was one of the earlier was ones. Was it? I can't remember which one it was then. But one one of Jeff's games on the C64 got a, a middling review, I think, from, from the, the collective at Zap. And he was ready. As soon as they interviewed him again, he was ready to talk about that. Like, he was fine. He was cool. But he was also like, he was, he had he had the attitude that they weren't very fair to it and that they thought he thought they were his mates and you know it's all this kind of thing <laughs> and the fact that the magazine printed this this all felt quite grown up and confrontational to me as a 12 13 year old i was like not expecting to see this kind of real life slightly soap operish 
back and forth tit for tat stuff so that always stuck in my mind that although he's this cuddly hairy hippie figure he was also somebody who didn't necessarily take any nonsense or take kindly to criticism so that's always been in my mind um i think it may have been the 1980 i think five game mama llama yes mama llama 59 <laughs> that's uh, the one i have Perfect. a poll quote here from Moby games even after several games there didn't seem too much addictiveness if you like it then there's almost endless challenges uh but there's actually you know plenty there but we suspect even mentor fans may not take to it uh and uh, yeah. I, i'll have to look up the the later correspondence but that's really interesting because what it most parallels is um like the comics journal is where i saw that sort of stuff in america where right. you know uh, i don't know pete bag would and gary groth would go at it or there'd be some like this kind of hmm. like this isn't you know these people are being um immature about this but they they see stakes because it's art and yeah. uh, you know reading zap is a very impressive magazine to come to i'll say as an outsider uh yeah because i always started reading it in the like early 2010s but yeah no I, that that's <laughs> right a very interesting uh and then right and then he does do the developer diary for um iridis because that's a few years later so uh, mm. i guess they patch it up yeah yeah for sure um and that developer um versus critic blowback came about again as i recall with space draft to an extent Ooh, yes. Was... yes yes yeah there was criticism about the lack of visibility of mm-hmm. uh, of you know the, the the enemy bullets and and whatever else and the general visual noise going on which is absolutely signature to that game um and 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 again i remember so the the sort of review average without looking up was probably around high high sixes low sevens for for that game even though i think a lot of us really like sean and myself really got into it mm-hmm. um and i do recall him being spoke you know interviewed and and kind of not particularly happy with the response which you know and and i think it's absolutely fair enough um for him to to have his own say but of course you know equally you can't make people like what they don't like so Mm. i'm sure the criticisms were were valid for from the reviewers from which it came but i think maybe him releasing a game to xbox live arcade in 2007 um there were some of us who like bought it absolutely you know the morning it came out thinking whoa new jeff minter game delivered to my front room on my yeah, yeah. on my on my latest yeah. console yeah. and other people are just like space giraffe yeah and now you <laughs> like you have to remember that back then 15 years ago there was probably one release xbla release per week oh, yeah. and uh maybe two but often just one it was a 400 microsoft point game three pounds 40 mm. pence so it was hardly a i think it was a three pound 40 game if i recall require correctly if it wasn't it was a 800 point six pound 80 game so either way very cheap now you you open the say the switch eShop in a morning and it feels like every day there's there's 14 horrific new <laughs> icons of indie games that you just you know there might be some gems in there but who'd know yeah. but back then it was like this game is out this week it's by this veteran developer it was it was kind of a big deal i mean it made sense it made some noise, but it also made sense then that a lot of reviewers, young reviewers in particular, and first-time buyers were like, "What the hell is this?" <laughs> I've uh, I've just checked. Yeah, so it was official Xbox magazine gave it two out of ten. Oh, and, and Jeff responded, calling mean. it quote just about the most extraordinary example of egregious <laughs> f wittery I've ever seen. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. What really frustrates me, I don't know, I'm going to talk about it in detail, but the, the whole like, you know, it's um, they can't see what's going on, or the, the whole artist. That's the point. That's the core mechanic. <laughs> yeah. That's the point. Yeah. That's why. Why now we're going back 15 years, having the same conversations with people. Like, yes, that's the point. You know, that's. I mean, a lot, a lot of it. I, I, a lot of it is in the audio as well, of course. Yeah, I was going to say the, that's yeah. the yeah. It's it's not that you should be able to see your way through it. It's that actually you kind of don't have to to an extent. Yep. Yeah, that's what makes yeah. it interesting. But yeah, it's interesting, yeah. isn't it? Because I imagine a lot of indie games get get reviewed badly. But the difference between Jeff Minter and most other developers of indie games is Jeff has a platform because of who he is and what he's done. Yeah, so he yeah. does get the opportunity to push back quite hard against some of these reviews. Mm-hmm. I imagine. Yeah. If you have made a game and you've made 80, 90% of it, a bad review must really, really hurt, especially when it's two sure. out of 10. Yeah. And the other half of that game or whatever percentage, I don't know how you divide it up, but he works. And since I think around that time and, and ever since with his partner, uh, Ivan Zorzin Giles. Mm-hmm. So it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt doubly as well, yeah. isn't it? So, yeah. 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 You know, one of my stronger critical beliefs is that there should that Metacritic should have standard deviation. That, like, without that, these numbers are are not meaningless, but le- much less meaningful. Because, uh, yeah, like, Spacecraft is a golden apple of Discord game, right? Like, there should be an award for the game with the highest standard deviation every year, uh, where you know, not the <laughs> right. highest average, but the greatest disparity. In the, God because, hand yeah, <laughs> the God Hand the, Award. Exactly. Yeah. The, the God Hand Memorial Golden Apple of Discord. Um, and those are always, you know, I don't love every one of those games, but they're always the most interesting uh, or among them. And I think I think the problem is, is just that something like OXM had such influence, right? If there's a hundred different people voting and having, you know, some amount of say, like maybe there is more today where it's more diffused through Twitch streamers and YouTube, you know, there's a lot of popular people, but there's just so much of it. Um, Then you can have just like, yeah, it's art. Like, I don't know, everyone doesn't look at Bridget Riley and, uh, you know, have their mind blown. Some people do, some don't. Precisely. It's fine. Yeah, absolutely fine. Yeah, completely. Uh, and he's also, of course, uh, fallen out and made up with Atari, uh, possibly on multiple <laughs> occasions. Um, it seems to be something that he does. We should also say, of course, that Atari, he's worked with at least two or three incarnations of Atari uh, as it's changed hands over the years. And the Atari now is not the Atari of uh, the 80s and so on and so forth. But yeah. um, but the whole Tempest and the TXK thing I found absolutely fascinating. Um so he uh, he made a game called TXK, which is very clearly strongly influenced by both Tempest and his previous work for Atari uh, on Tempest 2 and 3000s. Uh, he intended to bring that game over to more formats. It started on the Vita and looks absolutely wonderful on the uh, the OLED screen of the original model. Um, but then Atari pretty much said, yeah, this game's pretty close to Tempest, so maybe you shouldn't do that. Um, they kind of, you know, this, this all was public. And then within uh, a few years, Tempest 4000 comes out. Atari <laughs> and Jeff Minter are back together. Uh, and in fact, they even brings across the TXK soundtrack to Tempest 4000 as an option. Um, and it's sort of, I know, you know, basically he's a contracted worker who, who is self-employed, who, who takes the work where he can get it. 
Um, but it also, it, I think it, I actually think it speaks really well of Jeff that he is happy to be outspoken, happy to fall out with people, and but then also happy to say, you know, whatever works best for everybody in the end, we'll we'll make this we'll make this new Tempest game. Yeah, because and obviously we should. I mean, I think most people know this at this point, but obviously the Atari that he's dealt with over the years has changed a lot. It's yes, not really, very much so. You know, by the time he was potentially getting sued, it was not the same Atari he's presumably worked with in the past. Yeah, um, of course. Yeah. But yeah, as you say, the fact that they've, they've seemed to have found a, a road to peace um, speaks well yeah. of, of all involved, I think. It's probably a sign that Jeff has become a little bit more pragmatic as he's got older as well. The fact he was willing to mm. to go and treat with yeah. Atari after they put the blockers on TXK mm-hmm. suggests right. that he's probably just resigned himself to the fact that publishers are a thing and he needs them. Yeah, yeah he needs to feed the sheep. Capitalism's evil, but <laughs> you've got to pay the bills, right? For sure. It's the, old, the same old story. But I think like considering the length of his career and the sort of work he does... Yeah. Relatively uncompromising, I would say. Yes, um, agreed. I guess okay. So you know, may, maybe. I mean, you know, I guess doing the you know the visualizer for the Xbox 360 that was probably a. I imagine that's probably the best paydays had, right? Yeah, um, he he asked apparently t- he tried to negotiate a a, a percentage. <laughs> but they, but they, bless him, but they they weren't having it. No, um, but he tried. He tried. He got he got paid. But if he had got that percentage deal on the three sixty, uh, nice, I guess he'd have a lot more sheep now. Yeah. <laughs> Steve Norman from our forum says Jeff Minter was definitely the first game developer I ever heard of, and through my time with the Vic Twenty and Commodore sixty four, his name was a, as good a reason to buy a game as a screenshot on the back of the box. My first encounter was the nineteen eighty two Grid Runner on the Vic. 20 bought on a trip to the exotic Hitchin Market. <laughs> it was part his take on Centipede on ZX81 and part Space Invaders, and its frenetic pace still works today. My favourite of his is Andy's attack on there, though, which was Defender with llamas in it, and it also still feels great. Llamas became sheep and then camels on C64, but I was never so keen on being one of them. Then I had various remakes on 16 bit that never quite hit the mark focusing more on the latest visuals than what made the earlier games so timeless. I think that applies to the various takes on Tempest I've tried since then too, although nowadays I'm a bit more partial to the moose than the camel. I did actually play the Centipede game on the 81 uh, yesterday, I think it was. Yeah, yeah I, I saw you playing well, that. Yeah. Unofficial yeah. license, we should say. Atari <laughs> yeah. did not allow him to make that one. Yeah, um, yeah even back then with the limited hardware he was using, um, there was something to it. Uh, I don't know about you, Chris, but I was like, this is not bad. It's very simple. It's nowhere near as, as, as I mean, if you look at the 2600, Atari 2600 version, it's not, not up to scratch with that, but it's, it's his own take on it. Again, he's his own take. And his name is plastered all over it, by the way. It's right at the beginning. Like, yeah, yeah I made yeah. this and I, I'm, I'm shouting about it. I made Aren't this I thing. great? Look at me. <laughs> <laughs> why it's not? Funny, it's very playable. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 oh, it, yes. it, it's yeah. really smooth it's really playable and, and for anyone mm. who thinks well it was just centipede and it's really easy to recreate something like centipede check out some of those terrible terrible clones <laughs> of arcade <laughs> games that existed yeah. in the early yeah. 80s yeah. Uh, with ASCII and it, graphics and it goes, went like clappers it's really fast you can actually yeah. change yeah. the speed settings and I don't know how he did it but again he has this affinity with, with the machines and uh, making them do things they ought not yeah, yeah, and yeah. Uh, and then it, 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 
Grid Runner on the Big 20 is still regarded as one of the best games on that platform. Yeah. Mm. And uh, he also did some great games on the C16 as well, which very few people managed to do. Mm-hmm. So, you know, hats off to him. He really knew how to make... He does know how to make, currently, machines sing, like the Vita. I mean, the TXK mm. is an exceptional mm. game on that. Yeah. And I'm happy I own it, and it's still my Vita. I was playing it earlier today. <laughs> like, yes, this game is just phenomenal. So, yeah. Good stuff. Polybius uh, runs at 120 FPS. <laughs> yeah, he's always on the <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. He he believes very much in uh, in in uh, crisp inputs and no dropped frames. Uh, he he won't have it. Uh, a crime against God. He described <laughs> dropped frames. So he, I guess he he won't be enjoying uh, next gen Elden Ring at the moment. <laughs> no, Thanks for taking no. the time out of your Elden Ring schedules, by the way, everybody. Uh, yeah. That's just to that's just to timestamp this recording in, yeah. in for future generations. It's been a really good uh, back and forth. I gotta say, just in terms yeah, of yeah. visual style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Polybius to Elden Ring and back. Uh, April twenty second, nineteen sixty two. Then Jeff was born. Um, There's some good. There's some good interviews and talks out there. uh, Retro Hour podcast and some of the talks he's done. So I'm not going to delve too much into his childhood or or try to psychoanalyze. I don't think there's um, there's there's not much kind of secret or dark in there that is there to be uncovered as far as I can work out. If it is, it's very, very, you know, un, under underground and not talked about. So it, it all seems quite, it seems merry and healthy. He, he pl- talks about playing on his brother's Binatone yeah. uh, home console machine, which was, uh, you know, one of those kind of Pong clone type of plug into your TV, possibly black and white setups. I don't know if there was a color Binatone. I remember some black and white ones of these or even if they were color most people had a made made the kids plug their home consoles into the black and white tv so everything looked black and white uh he talks about he talks about arcade games but not so much at the arcades as places like um the the leisure center yeah, chippy yeah. <laughs> yeah um uh where was it he was saying he played the he, he played a defender cabinet and, and it absolutely you know blew his mind and Eugene Jarvis, the creator of that game, uh, we've covered Defender, I believe, on a previous podcast. Um, have we? I can't, I can't actually remember. We've done <laughs> Robotron. We should probably sort that out if we haven't. Um, it's been a lot of shows. Uh, and yeah, you, Eugene Jarvis became a hero of his, along with Dave Toyra, obviously, and uh, and some of the other Golden Age creators. That led to the, the that fateful day that you mentioned, uh, Chris W., there, where I think he was at sixth form. Would have been 1979, I think. Yeah. So um, he he basically he talks about how and and I know this feeling even though I was uh, I was younger than him and therefore the industry was a bit, uh, was a bit more mature by the time I was sort of aware of it that feeling that um, other people made these things or magic made these things these arcade games there was no you know there's nothing for me that there's no way I could get into in any way being involved in the creation of these things. But he he talks about going into a computer room in sixth form. He'd gone to a school, as most of us did, who were that of that age where there weren't any computers, or maybe there was later that later on there was one BBC Model B in one room that you were allowed half an hour on a week if if you were lucky, that kind of thing. But he talks about seeing uh, uh, another another chap on the Commodore Pet, and uh, was it? He was like saying that. Um, he actually he found that you could actually create things. That's right. He had uh, his his friend had a type in listing yeah. running up. That's running. right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. 
And then he, yeah, um, so then he say like, oh, well, you know, where, how did you get this game on here? And the guy said, oh, I, typed, it. I typed it in. That's and that it. was the yeah. light bulb moment for him. Like, yeah. 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 yeah, life changing. Yeah, you yeah. can imagine the Alleluia music in the background, can't you? As he said, <laughs> I typed it in. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, he had said a few years before he had done like a computer programming course, but it was one where you That's had to right. write it out, send yeah. it in. Yeah. And then a week later, you got <laughs> back, like, result. syntax error. or yeah. you know, whatever. Uh, Play-by-mail programming. It was, yeah, I, I watched um, a talk he gave, and, you know, he's talking about his early history, and it was, in, it was really interesting how, if you want to understand, like, I've looked at 6502 assembly, you know, I spent a week or two trying to learn a little of it and got nowhere, but it was very good at just <laughs> banging my head against that to understand what was going on. And, like... It is impenetrable uh, to the modern mind. But mm -hmm. if you want to understand how someone can get on the on-ramp where they would look at that and be like, holy God, like, <laughs> this is the mm -hmm. most powerful tool, you know, and, and, and the relative amount of effort that I have to make uh, to essentially be God uh, is, is a pittance, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, right, because he saw, I think he saw basic on the pet, and that was like the first light bulb um yeah. but then someone told him about 6502 and he bought a book and just started uh going yeah. down yes he managed to uh get together a hundred pounds it was the entry level machine that he could afford the zx80 thanks to uncle clive sinclair um and he still makes references to the spectrum and and uh an uncle clive's influence to this day a 1k machine cost him a hundred pounds in 1980 which would <laughs> Probably that would I guess that would be about four hundred five hundred pounds now. Maybe more. Um, yeah. Wow. That's Something like that. Then, yeah. Not insignificant. Yeah. In the U.S., it's about four times from nineteen eighty because yeah, had a class <laughs> after. But yeah, it's uh, this is something I actually kind of wanted to ask about uh, just because of that distinction between uh, the U.S. and the U.K. Um, I mean, this is what eighty two. I guess that he's getting this. 81? No, 80. Uh, earlier, 80. I think. Yeah. Earlier, oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 yeah 80, so. uh, ZX81 followed the ZX80. Oh, but, uh, he was there at the beginning. Jay, yeah. cut all this. This is embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, don't worry about it. No, no, no. It's, it's a perfectly reasonable question. No, no, um, no. You're not familiar with it. Yeah. It's, it is yeah. a bit weird. But... But yes, he had, he had 1K to start with, which obviously there's only so much you can do. Um, <laughs> I, and also uh, the screen although, would flash every time you yeah, that's yeah, funny. yeah. yeah. <laughs> screen flicker <laughs> he uh he had a was it a cousin who offered him a 16k ram expansion something like that and right. that allowed him to uh you know spread his wings a bit so to speak and yes as you mentioned he he started to learn about machine code which mm. uh which you would get on the on the covers of even the sort of hand drawn and and photocopied covers in cassette inlays of those early computer games it would sometimes say 100 percent machine code on the front <laughs> meaning this game is faster than those basic games you've played before basic as in the language um and i suppose as a descriptor as well um but yes he was he was genuinely blown away by machine codes efficiency compared to basic in terms of how much faster he was expecting things to be noticeably faster but not a magnitude faster but then when he started coding in code 6502 whatever he uh he went oh okay and uh the light bulb again went off uh and i guess you know sort of fast forwarding through the next few years 
uh, he upgraded to the VIC-20, made some games on that and, and uh, published them. Uh, Llamasoft, his own software label, came about really because he was already experiencing kind of disenfranchisement with yeah. the industry and shark-like practices mm. in in the early days, getting ripped off, which was a very common thing because you had these businessmen, basically, uh, you know, sharp-suited sharp types, uh, early 80s geezers, um, effectively exploiting the talents of, of young nerds, uh, <laughs> teenagers, yeah. and um, putting their games out and then giving the kid a little cut, more money than possibly they'd ever seen before, but not nearly as much as they should have been getting for creating the entire product. So <laughs> No, yeah. there's lots of documentaries about that era and some yeah, of the people yeah. were around that time. Brazen, quite brazen about it to this day. Oh, yeah. yeah. They just don't care. Well, it was and uncharted like, territory, wasn't it? It yeah. was the Wild West, as we say. And yeah, you know, and, and it was perfectly okay or perfectly safe, we should say, to release a game that was simply called Centipede yes. without any recourse to uh, lawyers or anything <laughs> like that because who knew? Nobody knew, nobody cared. No. Um, copyright, IP, licensing, all that stuff just wasn't really a, a deal at this point. Or if it was, it was very easy to fly outside the, the radar zone. I think by his own admission, though, he was quite naive in those younger days as well. I think he tells one story sure. about how he was invited over to do some work for somebody who was wanted to put some games out for the Vic-20. I think he ended up going to stay in Wales or something with this, close to where this guy had his base, and he ended up doing some work. And then he asked the guy, oh, am I going to get paid for this? Or how much am I going to get paid? And the guy said, well, no, you're not going to get paid. I thought you were doing this for free. You know, and then <laughs> yeah, he, right. he packed up in, in tears and, and went home. So... He probably wasn't as savvy maybe as some were back then. He just wanted a code. Wasn't yeah, there, he, right. he submitted a listing for a computing magazine and got paid £5 for its Five publication. <laughs> yeah, Bless it. it was a lot of money back then. He still got, he still, still got the, uh, yeah, the, the remittance. Check or whatever. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, yeah, so he upgraded to VIC-20, as I say, Commodore, and then from there went on to C64 and so on and beyond, which we'll talk about as we go through. And yeah, Llamasoft, uh, he basically had some help from his mum, as you'd expect from a teenage uh, kid who was trying to say, you know, she was uh, somewhat older, probably st still considerably younger than many of us here are now, but uh, she was experienced in the ways of the working world, at least. And so... Uh, uh, and so Llamasoft was born. And yeah, effectively, the he always liked sheep and yaks and llamas and camels. Um, and he started putting them in his games because, yeah, he basically he liked the Parker Brothers Empire Strikes Back game on the VCS. And one of the reviews he'd read at the time because of the low resolution of the Atats, the walkers in that game, somebody had said, these look like camels. And so... <laughs> That's that's what he did. He made the same game, but with camels, and yeah. Uh, and so yeah, kind of that that was also you know a huge influence because games like uh, Centipede and Grid Runner obviously didn't have the the sheep, goats, llamas kind of thing going on, but Attack of the Mutant Camels sort of really set the tone. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that was the very first one with with an ungulate or a ruminant in, but um, but it certainly was the one that um, I think helped make his name as well, just because it was such a funny, you know, it was a, it was a computer game with a funny name. Now, there were lots around at that time with kind of silly, silly, wacky yeah. names and covers. But but that one still stood out. Attack of the Mutant Camels. It's like, you know, it's a, you can't it's iconic. You can't mm. touch it. It's also <laughs> very, very long. A lot of them back then were more punchy because they wanted to get him onto the 
onto the tape cover and like they've got this huge oh god it's like it's almost a sentence in fact it is <laughs> you know it's just um no exclamation point though as far as i'm aware but yeah and yes, his uh, pseudonym, also known as Yak, Y-A-K, chosen back in the days when high score tables on coin machines only held three letters. And I settled on Yak, says Jeff, because Yak is a scruffy, hairy beast, a lot like me. <laughs> also known sometimes as Stinky Ox, as he is on Twitter, or Jeff Minotaur, which works very well. Uh, another little thing I wanted to touch on was his presence on the early days of Compunet. Uh, for the uh, for the children out there, let's have one of the granddads explain what CompuNet was. It's quite easy, really, isn't it? It was pre World Wide Web internet. Yeah, pretty much. So With limited it... users. Yeah, it's not CompuServe then. Or am I going crazy? That's something different. Entirely, Com- CompuNet was the UK based one. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, that's where Jeff was because um, we weren't on the World Wide Web, so it was very much a, a, a th- I think a British centric thing. I don't know about kind of whether the world was connected up at that point with CompuServe and CompuNet and whatever mm. else. I don't think they're really um, connected to each other, but uh, no. by late 80s, early 90s, you start getting Usenet, which becomes more international, I think. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that sounds right. But yeah, I remember, again, Zap64. Uh, again, we should <laughs> probably do a primer. Essentially, it was uh, uh, Newsfield Publishing's uh, based in Ludlow, um, Commodore 64 magazine. They already had a Spectrum magazine called Crash. There was later an Amstrad one called Amtix. And uh, they were highly, they were kind of like, if I guess it felt like they were kind of professional fanzines in a way, but mm. they were, you know, they were highly enthusiastic and very well written and comprehensive and, um, and had a lot of personality. And there was a CompuNet column in Zap, which talked about kind of what was going on on and I didn't really, really even understand it. I vaguely knew that you had to have a thing that you rested your telephone on, and um, and then you could, and the other people were there. But like it was, I mean, it's it's hard to imagine. Now we're sitting here talking to each other. Okay, we're all in. I think we're all in the UK for this show. Oh, no, we're not. Jesse's in New York. <laughs> we're talking to each other across the world on this show, uh, and um, and making a podcast that will go out to almost every country in the world. But back in 1983, 4, 5, whenever CompuNet set, uh, was set up, 84, I think, maybe. Um, yeah. Uh, it was a mysterious place, the idea that you could speak to other human beings online. Yeah, Jeff became a a figure in there, a character, and I think that was where some of the kind of the scenesters, the people of the time, people like who were writing for, for magazines and stuff would um, kind of have communication with the the people who are making the games and stuff like that so uh yeah he currently lives in wales jeff with his partner ivan giles zorzin four sheep two goats two llamas and a dog i've put citation needed because i don't know if that's up to date but uh but if you follow his social media you will indeed see that he does still have plenty of animals it is, it is a it's a hobby farm isn't it it's not um yeah. not a business but, not know, a working fine. farm yeah, yeah. does he does pets. he still broadcast on periscope every morning as well feeding his sheep he, he did as of a couple of years ago. <laughs> watching an interview with him, but I don't know whether he still is Periscope still a thing. I don't know. I, I don't, don't know. think it is, but but Twitter is still. Uh, he he puts them on Twitter. Okay, his sheep feeding. Yeah, it's it's pretty much up to date as far as I could tell yesterday. Um, 
yeah, feed it sheep feeding time. He'll just put, and then there'll be a little video of him feeding his sheep. Nice, <laughs> just what we need. Which is you know yeah. <laughs> very relaxing and bucolic and wholesome. Yeah, absolutely for sure. Uh, yeah, and as Wikipedia says, although Mint is synonymous with Llamasoft, Zorzin is jointly responsible for recent titles. As I say, at least going back to the mid two thousands. Uh, and another fact, Minter likes Indian food, particularly chicken vindaloo. Oh, he does. <laughs> yes, he will. Yeah, he he's just as enthusiastic about that as coding, I think. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe a little bit more. I don't know. He, he's got his things and he's into them. Pink Floyd yeah. being another one. Uh, he's remained faithful to the Floyd from, I think he loves the stuff all the way from Piper at the Gates of Dawn, possibly all the way through. I don't know. I guess he's got his favourites. Um I don't know what actually what the last Pink Floyd release was. I don't know if we got any fans in. <laughs> no. He looks they the Vindaloo type, though, doesn't he? Yeah, totally. Uh, and he definitely had his life changed by kind of... Uh, techno is the wrong term, but like in the 90s. EDM. Kind of yeah. EDM, prog, Dance, jungle. rave. Yeah, right. yeah for how, sure. How much of a huge influence that becomes on his games in the 90s as Absolutely. something you can do with uh, uh, Atari Jaguar that actually, as I said, I... I hooked it to a big subwoofer and it, it, yeah. it was worth it. <laughs> yeah, he talks about uh, when he was putting Tempest together and he sent, he was that's the kind of music he was listening to at the time, right? And he sent a kind of demo tape to the people who were yeah. going to be putting the audio together and they sent back what they'd made and he uh, actually called them up to say, you're joking, right? <laughs> this is going to sound like this in the game. <laughs> And uh, and he was absolutely thrilled and delighted with that because I guess, you know, he'd been working with, I think he'd done a lot of his own sound on, on the early games, hadn't he? Whereas some, some people had a sound guy or a music guy and he'd done a lot of his own audio in, and it's as kind of mad and out there as, you, as you'd expect. His sound effects are still kind of hark, even in Polybius and things like mm -hmm. that. They're harking back to the, yeah. the Williams era games and spectrum noises and yeah. Speak yeah. sound samples from the KLF and all this stuff. <laughs> he is absolutely faithful to his influences, and that and that is what possibly his defining characteristic in some. I'm ways. pretty sure I've heard him say that he still samples Grid Runner for all of his modern games. <laughs> that totally makes sense. I can <laughs> yeah. I can completely believe yeah. that. I guess one more thing that we should touch upon is, and again, this may actually be unfair in a man with a such a lengthy career. He has a sort of association with obscure or failed consoles. Now, I suppose that's going to be true of anyone who's who's been working in the industry for this long. Um, and maybe maybe it's my my perception that that is. a. But I suppose it is because I think back to uh, and I know uh, at least both the Chris's will remember the the much vaunted Conix <laughs> multisystem yes. with it. So this was a console. Who, who'd, who'd like to explain what the Conix Multisystem was going to be? Chris O'Regan's probably got one, so he should do it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't have one. If only. Um, I don't believe you, Chris. <laughs> there is um, there's a great video by um, the Retro Nerd, I think he's called. Um, but uh, he there's this history of this thing. Basically, it's a console for all things to all people, apparently. But what's really weird is it has... Rather than having peripherals like where most consoles have, like you get a steering wheel and an arcade stick and stuff, they decided, well, you know, Conics being specialists in making these um, these um, controllers for other yeah, machines. Yeah, they were a joystick anyway, company first and foremost. They were a joystick, yeah. yeah. So they thought, well, let's just make a console with a joystick built into it on you know, 
So they <laughs> so they put this steering wheel onto it. They put a. <laughs> it's just this ridiculous machine. Um, looks like a. Um, it does look like a regular sort of steering wheel controller, like the Sega Saturn one or the. Um, <clears throat> yeah, that's the best one I can sort of equate it to. But yeah, and that was a. It was. It was going to be quite a formidable machine. It it's going to come with a, a optional hydraulic chair. Yeah, like yes. arcade games. It looks <laughs> yes. obscene. Uh, that thing. Yeah, and yeah, there was, yeah. Um, apparently there was, uh, some engineers came in. They they stuck some um, some drills, like drill engines, like motors, into <laughs> this chair, and they put it in the like the uh, CES or, or like equivalent uh, uh, event. And uh, the people showed up, and then it set on fire, and wow. set it all down. <laughs> they realised that this is a bad idea. Um, but uh, no, it, it it had a lot of promise. There was the the you yeah, know, it did yeah promising the moon, and sadly, it didn't really. And its sad end is that the shells of those game that machine was eventually um, sold on or bought mm. by a Chinese manufacturer. Who then uh, took the same design concept of you could actually turn the steering wheel into like a more of like a motorcycle sort of like handlebars oh, yeah, and stuff. That's and, right. And yeah, you yeah, twist yeah. it off, yeah. and you can you can do all sorts of weird and wonderful things. And they re re released it, but only as a, a PC controller, which is a bit sad. Oh, I see. Okay, but uh, that's what you can buy now. It wasn't even um, it wasn't even free to develop for, so he'd had to invest in dev kit uh, and stuff like that. So right. a few grand. Um, and he knew it was not going to happen when he turned up to a, a trade show where the people who were working on games for the multi-system were supposed to display those games along with the people from Conix, and no one from Conix turned up. <laughs> not a single person, no display machines. Uh, so, yeah, he'd made a... Uh, he, I think he'd said he'd... There is a version out there that you can play somehow, um, emulation or whatever, I don't really understand, but... Uh, there's a like a 0.4 version of Attack of the Mutant Camels 89 that he was making for the Conics multi-system. Hmm. Um, he said he sounds like he was reasonably happy with it. Yeah. He said the the system was fairly capable. It had a blitter yep. like mm. the Amiga, so it was it was you know it was good at pushing sprites around and stuff and gradiated. It had more colours than than he was used to working with. And um, he was working. The other interesting thing he says about Mutant Camels 89 is he said he was he was uh, experimenting with fractal music. <laughs> so using the the mathematical equations behind uh fractals and applying it to sound and so using um major keys for when you're doing well and minor keys for when you're doing badly and having the music kind of procedurally generating as you play oh. which mm. sounds amazing to me possibly unlistenable but also <laughs> possibly incredible yeah yeah um he might have been influenced by Ballblazer because that was the first game that really absolutely. Because yeah. I know he's a big fan of uh, Fractalis. Uh, yes, I saw that yes. mentioned in one of his columns. So probably yeah. came across Ballblazer, and yeah, Peter Langston wrote a whole paper about that kind of uh, fractal algorithmic uh, music generation. That uh, yeah, it's a it's a fascinating little uh, corner. But uh, I, I I wonder uh, if he ever implemented something like that. It Certainly did, in the VLM and things mind. like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, uh, I remember the ball blazer manual leaflet insert even mentioned um because it had this whole amazing piece of uh, color right. flavor text possibly possibly at least partially influenced by George Lucas where it actually kind of sets the scene for this future sport that is ball blazer and talks about how the stadium has um this uh or whatever it's called like 
artificially generated jazz music kind of pumped mm-hmm. in or something like that. Yeah, no, and and, cool. and the winner every year of the Grand Ball Blazer tournament has their theme incorporated. Like that's Correct. the behind yes. the, all the different little riffs that pop that's in and out. That's right. Which, I'd forgotten that beautiful yes. detail. <laughs> Another fun fact about that game, I mean, canonically, Doc Palmas, the uh, songwriter of, of uh, I believe, Hound Dog, uh, is thus a Ball Blazer champion because he was one of the uh, friends of Langston that wrote riffs for that. But that's, we're slightly uh, off topic, although. We are slightly. <laughs> don't, we should say Jeff Minter didn't actually yeah, make Ball Blazer. If you were just look it up, that manual for that game is phenomenal. If yeah. only they made them like that, but it's just yeah. so bonkers. Much like the game. But yeah, we're off topic. Moving on. Yes. Back to Jeff. Um, We're going to look at his back catalogue. As I say, we may or may not have something or nothing to say about any of these. Those of you who have listened to our format special shows kind of know the drill. But essentially, we're going to go through our wonderful editor, Jay. We'll make it all sound wonderful for you in the end. But uh, we'll look at starting with his second and third generation games. We've already mentioned Centipede. But what about did anyone manage to play Deflex on either the VIC-20 or the PET. This is a breakout clone, I'm guessing, by the name. I did manage to have a go. Not not, not as entertaining as Centipede. What about you, Chris? Did you have a go? I played it on the ZX Spectrum. So there was a oh, there's a specy version. Yeah, there was right. a later port. He didn't do a lot of coding on the Spectrum, but that is one that he did take over to the Spectrum. It's really okay. playable. It's, it's a, it's, I suppose it's a puzzle game where you've got to... It's really simple where you've got a ball that's moving around the screen and you can, by by hitting a key, you can place these angled sort of bats, if you like, in fixed locations on the screen. And you've got to do it in a way which angles the ball into the targets. But the, mm-hmm. the, the kind of twist in the tail is that every time a ball hits one of your angled bats, it will it will flip, so it will change direction. So you've got to, got to kind of be thinking kind of three or four stages ahead. I, I fired it up just as a bit of a curio on, on, the, on the spectrum, and ended up playing it for about two hours. So it's, wow. again, right. it's yeah. incredibly simple. And he did make about four or five different versions of it. But it's he just has this knack of creating these really playable games, even back then. I, yeah. I think I if you pause Iridus Alpha, there is a version yeah. in there as well. Yes, I think there is. Yeah. Myth, it's called Myth by Yak. Correct. There was also... There was also a Commodore 64 version called Made in France. Because yeah. the programmer was actually in France at the time he programmed that part of the game. That Maybe in his head just, he was. That is, yeah. yeah, well, that is one of the most Jeff things you could have probably Jeff into things you'll be here like, what shall I call it? Where am I? Oh, I know. I think I'm in France. Call it that. You can't do that, Jeff. <laughs> Looks like France must be there. You can imagine a conversation with like, you can't call it that. Okay. But yeah. Myth. Watch me. Next up came 3D Labyrinth, nope. followed by Abductor. Then it was the first uh, proper attempt at a Defender clone, also known as Defender. Oh, dear. Copyright busting. <laughs> uh, Andy's Attack for the VIC-20 in 1982. It's not great, this one. Really? No. no it, 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 he says it himself, it's not great. I mean, he... he 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 wrote this really quickly after seeing the Defender machine in in that Southampton travelling fair that we mentioned earlier, and he right. he, he criticises it himself. And it, yeah, it's not great. It's clunky, and he was saying how difficult it was. You know that that lovely sweeping move that you get when you change directions in the arcade game. He really mm. struggled to recreate that. And the, mm. but the one thing he says that he he was really self critical about was the the. the the main ship sprite, he said, was about four times too big, so it takes up way too much <laughs> of the screen. 
it, I, I yeah. think it's pretty close to unplayable, this. Wow. Okay. Uh, next came Bombuenos Aires uh, on the VIC-20 in 1982. Then arri- that arrived on the ST in 88, and it was also known as Aggressor or Bomber or Blitzkrieg which is also another game involving tanks. He got into trouble about that, didn't he? Did you hear about that? He he actually did he ah. got he got a ticking off at the time from the UK's official communications department because really? and it won some some kind of the the a bad taste award for something because it was essentially <laughs> yeah. a game during it was, it was during the Falklands war when he wrote it. It was of essentially course. a game where yeah. you had to bomb Buenos Aires. Tackless as and hell. Yes. He he <laughs> meant it very tongue in cheek he says, but he of he course, got into a little yeah. bit of hot water. Yeah, I mean that was the the kind of the overriding narrative at the time was us versus them yeah. and all that kind mm-hmm. of nonsense. So um I guess yeah, I'm sure I'm sure he didn't mean it um tastelessly, but yeah, it it probably wouldn't it wouldn't have come out these days. It doesn't age um, well, no I don't they, think. It doesn't age well. They wouldn't have cha- they would have they, they would have changed the name for sure. Uh also potentially uh problematic, but I can't remember is uh City Bomber for the ZX Spectrum, one of his Spectrum games. Yeah, I think this is a like the 16k one uh, games that is doing for the early because the early Spectrum mm-hmm. games were 82, often yeah. 16 kilobytes. Indeed, that was the you know, yeah. the lowest the lowest denominator that people had to write for. But uh, rather simplistic game, okay, I guess, but uh, not something to really write home about. So perhaps his first game that really made a bit of a, a splash was Grid Runner. Originally for the VIC-20, also converted over to Atari 8-bit, Spectrum and C64 and re-released on budget labels and, uh, yeah, had a bit of a bit of life. Went on to make uh, Grid Runner 2, not that long after. And, yes, Grid Runner Plus and uh, Plus Plus. <laughs> Is there, there's an Android um, version, isn't there? I don't know what that's a... I don't know which Grid Runner it is a version of. Mm. Um, There's a Grid Runner iOS yeah. was part yeah. of the Minotaur project yeah. and a Grid Runner Revolution mm-hmm. in 2009. Um, yeah, let's anyone who's got anything to say about any Grid Runner game, let's uh, let's wrap all I, that up here. Well, I just cannot get over how well it's held up yes. as a game mm-hmm. now. Because mm-hmm. um, I was playing it earlier today on the Vic Twenty and yesterday, because I kept on coming back to it. And it's like this is so good. Mm. This is just the 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 little bits. Like yes, it's 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 centipede to a point, but without centipede doesn't have dirty great lasers either side of it. That <laughs> if you're not careful, you get annihilated with. And also the little rather little mushrooms just appearing when you kill the thing. There'll be like this thing that slowly grows to the point where then it releases a missile at you. And it's like <laughs> why? And like, you can you can shoot them down. Uh, and uh, but I think it just has all these things, and what's remarkable is we'll talk about it later. But those, those things, even though forty years later, it's still doing it. <laughs> still does those. Am I things. right in thinking it's a long time since I've played this? I had the Atari version, as I say. Am I right in thinking, unlike Centipede and Millipede in Grid Runner, can you go all the way to the top of the screen, or are you still limited off? Not in, plus, not plus, in the not in the OG version. Yeah. You can, okay. I think you can that. go a little higher. I think you yeah. can go like right. two fifths okay. instead of like a quarter. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. So the I guess the main wrinkles here are the the X and Y lasers, which mean that you can never ever relax even for a second mm-hmm. in uh, in Grid Runner. Frenetic game. I absolutely love this game. Uh, it's yeah. still 
It's probably my favourite, other than one that we'll come to later. It's probably my favourite Jeff Minter game, even now. It's it's so playable. And it's one of those games when you fire it up now on original hardware, it, it is a how did he make it? Uh, how <laughs> did he get the VIC-20 to do what it's doing? Yeah. It still holds up so well. And I, he was 20 years old when he made this. It just blows your mind. <laughs> yeah. And I think, like, you know, if you're listening to this and you've not played any of them, yeah, like Grid Runner Plus Plus is available now, you know, for free on the Llamasoft website. And yeah, like, I had yeah. a quick blast just before recording this and it holds up. Like, I mean, yeah. you know, for me, it was as someone who doesn't follow, you know, shoot 'em ups too closely, like playing this back when I did, um, it was, you know, it was a number of things that really sort of fit me. Like, for one, um like a shooter where you just control the ship with the mouse like felt amazing like just the mm. the degree of of control you get yeah. over it the mouse enabled him to what he couldn't do on the on the vic 20 mm. and, and the other eight bits and stuff was more accurately replicate the trackball of the centipede yeah. arcade machine whereas giving the player the mouse con- uh mouse option yeah yeah Sorry. um no i was just gonna say and just the fact that like there is no fire button because you're just always firing because why wouldn't you be? Yeah. You know, that was like, oh yeah. my God, of course. Like, <laughs> why have I never seen this in a shooter before? Um, Space Giraffe does that as well, yes. doesn't it? Yeah. You just move, I think. Yeah, I'm com- confused as to why Polybius doesn't do that. You have to hold down the fire button just forever yeah. in that game. Yeah. yeah. You can play Grid Runner in VR these days, which yeah. is just can you? incredible. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, wow. yeah, the PSVR version. We'll come on to later, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. We're talking Grid Runner now. If you've got anything to say. Okay, about well, it is, it, is, it is a wonderful thing to be able to loom over the Grid Runner grid <laughs> and still lose horribly <laughs> to the same lasers. And that, that game, and that's, that's, that's one of the. When, when I played it on PSVR, it just reminded me, and we haven't mentioned it yet, but I just want to talk about the ridiculous little quips. Of text, like good show, <laughs> awesome, well done, sir. Have a biscuit, you know. That's like it's all just like, oh yeah, and you know, um, Cameron's folly, and like yeah. oh, that's a great, that's a great level. Oh, and little Union Jackson falling down. Oh, great, yeah. Get loving the satire, Jeff. Gotta love it. Social but, commentary um, as well. Yeah, yeah. But I do love, love the little encouraging sort of messages, like oh, well done. You're not bland. <laughs> I think the names of some of the levels as well. Um, I mean, skipping ahead, but like you know, when like you first load up Space Giraffe and level one's called the Eyes of Allard, and there's that sort yeah. of <laughs> the distorted image of Jay Allard in the background. <laughs> oh, it's right. absolutely surreal. That's right. Um, yeah, I remember people, also, people losing their minds over that. Also, uh, and this may be me um, drawing a conclusion, which is not true. Um, but yeah, revisiting Grid, Grid Runner Plus Plus, and the first level is called Everything Everything, and I was like, "Is that where mm. the band got the name from?" I don't, oh. I don't know, but oh. it's not impossible, especially given, yeah. you know, I mean, he's, you know, Polybius was in a Nine Inch Nails video, so <laughs> yeah, yeah, true enough, yeah. true enough. Uh, anyone know Ratman? I don't know Ratman, not personally. Uh, yeah, I met a party. <laughs> yeah, I've met a few. Yeah. I took one for the team and played Ratman. Uh, oh, okay. I won't play it again. It's not great. <laughs> okay. Okay. Right. Thanks. Thanks. And how about Rocks Three? Is that an asteroids type of affair by any chance? Do we know? It's no. It's more like Missile Command. It's actually quite oh, playable, okay. where you have to kind of time your shots to take out these uh, incoming. Yeah, it's it, it's a lot like Missile Command, but you 
the the enemies right. are trying to destroy your the floor that's beneath you and you just need it's very simple again but he he, mm. he says he wrote this over christmas with his father one christmas oh, must nice. be 1981 into 82 and uh it was the game that got his dad into uh, playing video games and his dad actually co-designed hover bother later so we've got oh. um rocks ah. is actually quite important in the jeff minter story very cool uh super deflex a enhanced i guess maybe not follow up to the original deflex turbo flex uh now i should know this because i am something of an atari 8-bit fan but um i don't remember ever seeing a copy of turbo flex and as such i'm not familiar with it uh, I think it is another uh, version of Deflex, uh, which which I have not played, but oddly is, I don't think either of them saw each other's games, but it's slightly reminiscent of uh, Bernie DeCoven's game, uh, Ricochet, and uh, okay. I think yeah. a lot of who the kind of equivalents, the Minter are, and certainly DeCoven's kind of uh, uh, mm. somewhat equivalent figure in early games. That one I did play, yeah. yeah. Uh, Attack of the Mutant Camels came next, Atari 8-bit and C64. 1983 at first uh, also known as i didn't know this advance of the mega camel um i guess in some territories i don't know um yeah so i i bought this on a, on a little tape for my atari and uh i played it quite a bit even for the time it seemed relatively simplistic but i'd never owned an atari vcs uh, and i was a huge star wars kid so i'd never got to play the empire strikes back game that always looked so cool in the adverts so this was you know, they were camels and not walkers, but you could use your imagination even with the psychedelic backdrops and, <laughs> and pyramids in the background. Um, pretty straightforward game, up and down, along, shoot the camels before they get to the, the point at the end of the screen. But um, but it felt uh, felt snappy and crisp. And uh, although you, I think it was a one bullet on screen at the time game, but because you were often so close up to the, the camels, it felt like you were firing, you know, absolutely pummeling them. Should be said, there's no uh, tow cables and harpoons in this uh, Attack of the Mutant Camels <laughs> game uh, in the same way as there wasn't in the Empire Strikes Back game on the Atari VCS, but we didn't expect such things <laughs> back then. Um, so, yeah, I have very fond memories of this game. And sometimes it's the kind of game that I wouldn't go out of my way to play now, but I'll occasionally just put a YouTube video of it of somebody else playing it and just have the, the soundscape kind of transport <laughs> me back to the mid 80s. Yeah, I did actually stream this for for Kane and Rince uh, a while back now, maybe over right. a year ago now, as yeah, part yeah. of like a Jeff Minter sort of like collection of three games I went through, and this is the first one I played. Mm. And there's, there's 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 depth here. There's the um, is the, there uh, depth? Yeah, there's depth. There's a little bit more depth. <laughs> Where did you find giving that? It, giving it credit. Um, okay. There's the there's the there's the weapons that it fires at you. The the camel that is. They yeah. vary. Some of them are like this regular sort of guided missile that. that when it fires, yeah. the the whole thing goes. And then between when you actually do kill all three or five of them um, of the camels, you then go to the next level and you can go into hyperspace, but you've got to avoid this missile that's yeah. going towards you for no oh, reason. In uh, <laughs> yeah. but intense so and terrifying, though. Yeah, but it's a real it's a real um, joy to behold visually. It's just that's where. Jeff is really making his mark. Like, okay, I'm going to go nuts now because I can with this C64 and indeed the Atari 8 bits, which I do hold in same sort of like the level as regards to power. Uh, they were the most powerful 8 bits back then, in my humble opinion. And, he, uh, um, he describes it, his camel sprites as uh, two fat men in a camel suit. Totally. <laughs> He'd know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And speaking, I mean, I was always, like I said, I had played 
the Empire Strikes Back on the Intellivision, which I adored. So when oh, I saw yeah. this, I thought, awesome, this would be, this is this kind of the same thing, only way, way more psychedelic and, and, and uh, um, bountiful in terms of sound. And it didn't disappoint. So, yeah, one of my favourites, personally. I do, I do regularly go back to it on my C64 Mini. Nice. Headbangers Heaven. I'm not familiar with this one anyway. Yeah, it's another another one of the another yeah. one of the early games where you you have to move between these uh, almost like Space Invader style kind of safe places to collect cash mm. while uh, while hammers <laughs> are falling and trying to hit you on the head. The twist uh, of this is you have to actually let the hammers hit you on the head, and then oh. that increases your score multiplier. And this kind of risk and reward <laughs> mechanic it, it's it's not great. <laughs> okay, but it sounds very, very much like an early '80s ZX Spectrum game. Yes, <laughs> looks like one yeah. too. Yeah, yeah. So next was Hover Bother. Now, this uh, I wanted to raise the the question of the sort of the the Britishness, for want of a better <laughs> descriptor, the humour. Um, we were talking about this game on our Cana Rinse Slack the other day, and uh, Leah who is also American, regular listeners will know this, and she chimed up saying, hello, I'm American. What is a hover bother, basically? <laughs> like, what does that mean? Why, why is it called bother just because it rhymes with the word hover? So we had to explain that bother is basically cockney for bother, which is trouble or, you know, strife, possibly a fight. Um, <laughs> interestingly, I noticed the original cover has two Vs in bother, and the re-release cover has just one V, Ooh. making it more like Bova, but then <laughs> it's Hover. So, uh, yeah, I played this game a lot on my Atari 8-bit, and it had that... It, it, graphically, it's nothing much to write home about, but the presentation was cute. It's got a little cutscene before each yeah. level where you uh, nick the mower from your neighbour. Um, it abs- um, it's not... Obviously, we know Americans mow their lawns too, right? But there's something about the setup of this game that is so very, very uh, 1980s Britain. It feels like the computer game version of any number of TV adverts of the time or sitcoms. Um, there's a dog barking around your feet and, and don't <laughs> mow the flower beds. And, and I was going to ask Jesse, as you're our overseas correspondent for this show, mm-hmm. And I know, obviously, you're a very cultured person and you're extremely <laughs> cognizant of British humour and stuff like that. And we've sent you down some fantastic rabbit holes of <laughs> seeking out British culture as well. But what's your sort of take on, on this? I mean, do you think that actually this sort of permanent inclusion of British touchstones of humour and that particular sort of slightly Python-esque kind of thing might have actually been a barrier to Jeff's success uh, when he's not making... I think there's just, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it th- that separation is, as I said, kind of interesting to me, especially because through basically pure accident, I just teach the American side because uh, yeah. Bennett Foddy, who used to teach at the Game Center, uh, taught this European course. And that. so there has been, a, like, especially doing this Minter special, I have been trying to figure out a way to squeeze another week of just like, maybe I can just do a mm. week on the UK because it's a very interesting parallel where even paradroid didn't have any impact here whatsoever right mm, like no. which is which is i think a more accessible game in some mm. way yeah. and i think it's partially business i think it is partially the level of maybe just superficial polish you would see at a game at that point 
like where electronic arts and other the cassette versus diskette kind of disparity. Um, I don't think culturally, uh, I could have definitely seen this game coming out uh, from Synapse uh, alongside yeah, right. their other <laughs> games and seeming just a little wacky, but no, no stranger than uh, most of their other games. Um, yeah. I played about a half hour of it down at the game center uh, this week, and I I enjoyed it. Uh, mm. It's uh, interesting. I mean, it's not a Pac-Man game, but it is in the genre of touch every space on the grid once or the mm -hmm. important spaces or whatever. Uh, yeah, yeah. But it throws really interesting wrinkles into that. And I mean, it 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 is of a piece. You know, I guess I'll talk more about this at the end when I do my summary, but. Yeah, uh, you know, I I am this semester. I don't teach the '80s class. I teach traditional card games. You know, where we play whist and gin uh, <laughs> and hearts and and you know other essentially folk games. Mm. Uh, and yeah, I mean, Hover Bover, like many people did at the time, treats Pac Man like it's whist or like it's a trick to you know it is a folk form, and you are going to take your own spin on it, and it can be simultaneously really idiosyncratic yeah. but still basically relate back to this same core form yeah and it's kind of got some yeah like what feels to me like british folk culture in it as well of of what is now you know a, a time of a time past like I'm not, again it's not like people don't still mow their lawns and have fly mows but there was something about this period like hover mowers were a new thing right they were it, it was uh i think specifically you're supposed to have a uh, a hover bother, uh, hence the name, um, and uh, and it was it, there was it was that sort of aspirational thing about uh, uh, the, the the guy that you play isn't going to pay for his own hover mower, so he's <laughs> right. basically going to go and uh, he's going to go and nick his neighbours and it, uh, it, possibly never return it. It did make me think that a perfect pub trivia question would be, "What are the names of the three neighbours in hover bother?" <laughs> oh no! I think you would really, yeah, I don't know. No, I can't do you, that. Yeah. Alf, Jimmy, Dave, and Alf. Yeah, remember Alf? Can't remember the third Nick? one. Yeah, um, <laughs> but yeah, I think it. Right, I mean, look, you all like meatloaf. Like this is kind of the like you know this is my vision of Britain: <laughs> an enormous flower garden and the you know Percy Granger constantly playing in a loop. Uh, yeah. Have you ever seen um, British culture reference uh, the Good Life sitcom? <laughs> I've seen it referenced. Yeah. So that that would basically be uh, the Ledbetter's garden would be uh, would be hover bother. <laughs> anyway, uh, anyone else uh, got anything to say about hover bother? Just, just the only thing I was going to say, and you just mentioned it, Leon, about the uh, the fly mo, and that that was where the the mm. idea came from because they just released the hover mower, and I think the advert That's was it. you can now hover with little bother. And I just wondered whether a lawnmower had ever been licensed in a video game, and and if not, <laughs> whether it should have been for hover bother. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it could have been like one of those because we did used to get those tacky tie-in games, even on budget labels, didn't yeah, we? For the, sure. You know, the ones that had um, Pop or Crisps or some shop or yeah. you know, uh, I'm thinking of Colin, clumsy Colin, action biker, oh, action that biker. kind of thing. Oh yeah, oh, no, yeah, yeah. don't go there. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> Is it kind of the start of him having more mechanically complex? Like, there's the dog loyalty and dog tolerance mm. meters, and like you can't <laughs> yeah. go too fast with your mower or it overloads, and it gets. You know, it's it's a little crunchier, I feel like, than than his earlier games, and that's something you start seeing more of. I'd like to think, based on what Chris said, that, that those things like that were maybe his dad's influence, yeah. saying mm. sort of saying, you know, it's the kind of thing that an older person might say, but 
you know, like there are consequences for your actions, right? So mm. he's he's made all these games where you just shoot stuff and it blows up, basically. Um, but then you start making a game with your dad and he's he's consulting on some of the concepts. And it is the kind of dad thing that would say that, like, what, you know, yeah, right. maybe you annoy the dog or maybe you overheat the, mo- the mower or uh, something like that. I don't know. Pure, spurious that, speculation. That seems like part, very reasonable speculation because he's probably played more board games with his dad yeah. than video games. Yeah. So that a yeah. bit of the resource management, I could see how that would creep in. I think his most original game to date as well. I mean, as Jesse's just said, it, it mm. is really a derivative of Pac-Man, but probably mm. other than Rat-Man, it, it's the rest of his, his games which preceded this really were all clones of, of earlier games. This feels like the most original game he'd made as, a, as of the time. Yeah, yeah, no, it's definitely... I mean, there are, there's a bunch of really good ones. At, oh, Ladybug and Mousetrap and uh, mm-hmm. uh, John Freeman, who, who writes, uh, who's, who's sort of an equivalent in some ways to Minter at the time, I suppose, in America, who later does Archon, but at this point is doing a game called like IRS Attack, which yeah. is a very peculiar <laughs> Pac-Man scrolling sort of game. But he's very particular about it not being a clone uh, <laughs> and very disdainful of the clones. Uh, and Which I don't think Minter, right, Minter is really coming at this from a different almost zini kind of angle or like yeah. um but but yeah no i think i think this is a remarkably original game uh and uh very much fits in yeah to his, to his of mm. genre wise where does laser zone sit and fit it sounds quite generic no one knows <laughs> i didn't play one i actually didn't play <laughs> oh sorry I, I mean you've done amazingly by playing <laughs> yeah, so yeah. many of these to be honest it's um it's uh invaluable stuff but yes no as as i said no one's going to have played everything and that's i mean fine. i'm googling laser zone now and it's just coming up with like laser quest just places. coming up with local yeah, yeah. laser zones yeah um or uh, covid hives as, uh, <laughs> as we now call them we also only we have like an hour 20 left and if you look at this list that's yeah really yeah yeah because got a very long yeah, career well, uh yeah so some of these we can uh we because we've kind of already touched upon them but um next up was metagalactic llama's battle at the edge of time talking of long names that's an even longer one possibly his longest sometimes known as meta llamas i think this is this one is nothing like for if, if i'm remembering correctly this one is nothing like the other llama games it was a bit of a kind of standalone i think this is the one where kind of spider-like creatures come down from the ceiling and you have to kind you of pick them off at with, an angle you, you play yeah. as a llama um, yes. Yeah. Not nothing like nothing like kind of the other llama games that he made later. Yeah. So Revenge of the Mutant Camels, because he didn't really like the fact that although he wanted to make the Attack of the Mutant Camels game, he uh, didn't want uh, the camels to kind of uh, have no recourse to uh, revenge. <laughs> so here we go. Uh, the, they 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 came back and uh, you played as a camel in this one. Um, now, I had the, it says C64 only on the Wikipedia, but I had the Atari 8-bit version of this, which I think was converted by somebody else. And it was horrendous. So my mm. opinion of this game was always was always low, but I think it was just one of the many cases of uh, rushed third-party ports um, in the name of getting the game out on another system. But actually, I remember the Zaps, uh, Zap64 review of Revenge being more positive. It was, yeah, I mean, even without revisiting it and as i say i was a tiny child um when yeah. i when i first played this um but even now i remember like it's some of its peculiarities just in terms of the movement the fact that you know the your your character the camel sprite was i don't think it's as big 
as in yeah. uh, attacking mm-hmm. mutant camels, but it's still way yeah. bigger than you're used to in any other game. So you you are you know you're this this huge you know death dealing machine, but also just because of how big you are, you're also quite vulnerable. Big hitbox. <laughs> yeah, and and you know coupled with the fact that the movement's quite stiff. Um, but also if you stand still, you start sort of, it's kind of a forced scroller, isn't it? You sort of start sliding backwards. Yes. Um, and like you can jump incredibly high. I think that the full height of the screen, but you have, well, you know, once you've committed to a jump, there's very little control involved. So you've got to be sure that you, you know, you, you sort of, your vertical route is, is clear. Um, and then things like, you know, as you're sort of shooting these sort of, I don't know, pellets from your, your camel's mouth. Um, there can only be one on screen at a time, which you realise, you know, if you're shooting into the air, that means it's you know, a relatively slow rate of fire. But if you're shooting directly at the ground, it's like this constant, pretty much constant barrage. So is that you know, when there's enemies on, you know, you might sort of take some time to shoot enemies in the air, but then if a couple of you know sort of amassed on the ground, you can sort of just march forward and just you know just rattle through them. Little things like that that really sort of clicked even even back then. Just little things to sort of learn and, and figure out. Um it just was was really interesting to me. Um the fact that although this is Revenge of the Mutant Camels, the, the I think there are some levels where you're taking on the, you know, the defender style ships from Attack of the Mutant Camels. Yeah. But it's mostly just yeah. weird stuff that you're fighting. You really weird <laughs> yeah. stuff, yeah. Totally Yeah, this is where the, the kind of the Matthew Smith yeah. type of Yeah. Uh, approach to to a early 80s computer game design comes in where it's like what can i see what have i seen today what's going through my slightly adult yeah. mind <laughs> let's <laughs> throw just, it on the screen i enjoy the implication that you know they're not just getting revenge on the the people that attack them to begin with they're just mm. nah sod it let's get the entire universe let's just <laughs> let's yeah, destroy just everything revenge on everything yeah, yeah. just generally <laughs> including <laughs> toilet seats yeah, yeah always toilet there's seat. walking sticks as well at one point yes. it all gets a bit weird yeah. oh yeah cats and dogs literal cats yeah. and dogs raining from clouds yeah etc yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. The odd one. When do they get their revenge? revenge. Elden Ring. Uh, yeah, good, <laughs> good point. At least the dogs. And Bloodstained. Yeah, yeah good yeah, point. Yeah. Uh, Tracks was an Amidar type game. This is one I'm not familiar with. I don't think I'd even heard of it. It's another one that really isn't that good. And he says himself it's not that good. He, he was experimenting with an Amidar type game after really enjoying mm-hmm. playing Amidar in one of his local pubs. And he yep, tried right. to recreate it, but it's it's kind of one of those where you've got to paint the lines, but you can't stop your movement at any particular junction. So right. it's it's really, ah. really yeah, got and this this did get some really bad reviews in the in the gaming press at the time. Hmm. Uh, and came next, which uh, was a title that always intrigued me, but alas, it was C sixty four only. This is the the one where you sort of you're in a well, not a square, but a sort of a bound rectangle, aren't you? And you can sort of mess the gravity around so that you stick to sort of any any particular surface is that the one yeah yeah Yeah, that's the one yeah and conceptually a bit more original yeah um very weird and very like quite impressive like the the feel of switching the gravity um like can't have been easy to pull off back then um it had a map that you could move around as well so you could move around a map from i think it had a hundred screens that you could go from you could it was once you opened up the exit, you could move around the map in a non-linear way. He's really proud of this game, but you have to play it for a long time to understand what's going on. Mm. 
<laughs> Hellgate involved the Zyaxians again. Uh, and this is, I, I mean, uh, yeah, so graphically very simple. Started on the VIC-20. Uh, you got ships around the edge of the screen trying to take each other out, I guess. It reminds me a bit of Warlords, only without the breakout element. So next up came Psychedelia. Is this the first of his uh, many experiments with light synthesizers and, yeah. and visualizers? Yeah, I think so. We'll talk about that in one in one little bundle. It's not even really our remit because it's not a video game, but it's, it's pertinent to his career. Mm. He obviously went on to, as we said, make the one, the visualizer for the Xbox 360. Um, I think he was, was he approached? He said he was approached to make the uh, the boot up for the original Xbox or something like that. He didn't get he the didn't email, did he? Didn't get the email? <laughs> well, he right. claims he didn't get the email, so they right. he, he missed the chance. Wow. Right. Um, but yeah, so these visualizers, including um, Tripatron, um, what are the other ones? The VLM. Psychedelia, Color Space, Tripatron, Psychedelia, VOM. BLM, um, yeah, for the new on DVD. Uh, and he was saying um, at least one or two of these did get used by various live acts, including Prince. A Prince <laughs> wow. concert or Prince tour did get uh, did get a backdrop in, in, that involved some of his visuals. It's a little surprising he didn't do more with like summer festivals in Britain or some, I don't know. Yeah. I, I, certainly he loves, you know, he when he talked about Pink Floyd, I think one of the things he's, Mm. Uh, he's a big fan of the albums, but I think their status is the one band that, like him or not, knew how to play a stadium, you know, in, in a way that other bands maybe just didn't have the grandiosity for mm. Uh, mm. in terms of, yeah, you know, uh, a light show and an experience. And uh, I think that's, you know, there's a straight line there. But yeah, I mean, uh, I always, the only thing that ever remotely tempted me to get a Jaguar CD <laughs> uh, was the possibility of, of putting in, you know, a techno CD and, and looking at the uh, Jeff Minter VLM on yeah. my, you know, 21-inch uh, CRT or whatever. Sheep in Space came next, a return to the uh, animals meat defender kind of genre. <laughs> this is, yeah, this is the one you have to stop and graze every so often, isn't it? Get your, get your energy <laughs> back. You have to, like, stop on some grass and just let yourself eat for a bit and then fly off as as sheep do. Oh, that's basically all I remember about this <laughs> one. <laughs> or roll the, off. The, <laughs> yeah, the embryonic version of the Halo ch- Shield research. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Uh, so Batalix I mentioned earlier. Um, oh, this is a weird one. Is, is this the sort of yeah. first person on the back of a camel one? Yeah, well, there's six mini six games. Six mini games, yeah. Ah, sorry, right. Based on the games which they all play at the same time. Mm-hmm. And it's all yeah, a bit of course weird. You do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And it's like, all a bit you, weird. You, you just basically go, well, I'm kind of tired of this one. Let's just switch to this one. Uh, okay, we'll just do this. I have no idea what's going on here. Let's play something that's a little bit more, you know, it's all very strange. What do you think of this, Chris? Did you have a good, a good go ahead? I only had a little go at this. It, I know this because it was featured in Retro Gaming not that long ago. I think a couple of years ago, there was a big there was a big feature on the making of this. Again, it, it, it feels like one of those that you have to putting the time into each of the mini games. Yeah. I mean, it's, what's, what's quite good about it is that if you don't get on with one or more of the mini games, then you can focus on, you can play them and you can flip from, from game to game. 
You can play them in really any order you want. You can get really good at one. You can ignore another. Mm. But in, he, interestingly, he was asked in this Retro Gamer article whether he'd be interested in porting it and remaking it and porting it to one of the modern systems. Mm-hmm. And what he actually said was rather than do that, he'd rather make six new games and expand <laughs> each of the concepts. I think <laughs> one was Attack of the Mutant Camels 2 or, an, or a variation yeah. of yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, um, AMC too. So it just shows yeah. you where his mind goes. His mind is full of these ideas. And rather than just remake something he's already done, he'd rather just take the concepts and make them into full-blown mm. games. Yeah, one of, one of the mini-games is Psychedelia. Yes. Um, another is a puzzle game called Synchro 2, Sippy on the Run, which is often used in the screenshots, as is the activation of Iridis Base, which is the kind of first-person or third-person, if you are the camel <laughs> um and hallucinobomblets is the first one so yeah by all means uh jeff make all of those into yeah, yeah. into games ps5 or, exclusives or we'd like that yeah oh well yeah i mean this is what this is what the the current gen of consoles is for is for more visual noise um, <laughs> that's what i want to see mama Lama, we talked about briefly anything else to say on that one the one that caused an argument uh, I did find it was it was the first issue of um, the Zap, which also featured uh, Jeff Minter's first column for them, uh, which That's is a yeah. remarkably ballsy. Yeah, it's it's very yeah. again the Comics Journal is the only American equivalent I can think of this of just this kind of magazine where the artists and the critics just kind of have it out and uh, are kind of yeah. proud of their uh, irascibility. Now we just do it on the internet and it's wholesome yeah. fun for everybody. <laughs> Uh, Aridus Alpha came next and this was uh, yeah this is although it was uh, a weird and unusual kind of game uh, I think a lot of people really dug it and I think it's it's gone down as something of a cult classic on the C64 yeah uh, I I have not played it but I watched like a 25 minute video of it and it's it's pretty fascinating and again has kind of a a fairly complicated kind of resource management system I, I mean has anyone actually uh, tackled it not recently enough to comment, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, it. Lo- I mean, I was still figuring it out. The person who was playing it was talking about it. They did not ever make it to uh, stage two, uh, which sounded in- <laughs> just totally yeah. different from stage one. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, you're controlling two ships, one on the top of the screen, one on the bottom. That's it. That's yeah. kind of like parallel universes and you have to flip back and forth between them. <laughs> Yeah. And you're collecting resources, but you can overload, so you have to kind of drop them off on the ground. And That's right, and sort of discharge uh, it. Yeah. And there's a really yeah, cool it, sort of it, transition to like becoming a little little sort of walker thing, isn't there? There's like little legs yeah. sprout yeah, yeah. out, and you and then you sort of fly off again. It's yeah, really cool. It is. It's pretty prog, I would say. I was I was thinking, you know, when he was thinking about him and Pink Floyd, that it is interesting that a lot of his influence seems to be the sort of moment to moment sensory overload side as opposed like you know yeah. he, he not uh, the grandiosity or big structures but looking at a riz alba i think yeah that is an art rock game in a good way <laughs> so games wise he kind of uh, finished up on the c64 in 1987 with a game called void runner which i assume is a kind of successor to grid runner yeah, it is. but different yeah, yeah. Uh, and then he started uh, on the next generation machines, Amiga and ST, with Super Grid Runner. <laughs> Though I don't know how much of Void Runner and Super Grid Runner, how much DNA is shared. When the uh, 16-bit machines arrived, I didn't play a lot of his stuff. Gotta say, mm. um, uh, I'm, I have since now, but they are definitely 
building and but it's typical for that time where they didn't quite know what to make of this stuff what to do with it and i'm including jeff in this um sometimes they're going the right way with it but a lot of times it's like i don't know just add some more wibbly colors to it that might work and this this high resolution of everything but ultimately it's still the same experience uh but with jeff he did try to push the envelope a little bit more make it a little bit more interesting but not again he suffered just like everyone else not entirely sure what to do with this new 16-bit processing power well i would say uh so he was making defender 2 for atari which is obviously it's a it's a, a bold title to give something especially as stargate was already kind of known as defender 2 this is a, a, a slightly separate game um but this was him actually getting to make a version of a game that was one of his kind of all-time favorites a hero game of his and um the reception to it was was middling and i think he talks of there was some kind of studio notes as you'd have it in the film industry that he wasn't so keen on that he he actually wanted to make the game more particle based and uh with smaller graphics that more closely replicated the original early 80s tech but with more particles and and you know more frames and smoother but actually what he ended up making was a game with larger sprites more detailed sprites and a lower frame rate and actually that's not what he was what he wanted to do but it's what atari wanted him to make so i think maybe there was a compromise there a couple of games of his from this era that i'd pretty much forgotten about were photon storm and hardcore i don't know if anyone's got anything on those but i kind of i i know those games and i know the titles and i i can see the screenshots in my head but i'd kind of broadly not associated them with jeff minter for whatever reason were they published by atari leon I believe so, yeah. Yeah, certainly Photon Storm was. They're, they're less, I mean, even, well, well, Lamatron is, is different and Lamatron's got a story in its own right, but it feels like those yes. those three games, Hardcore, Photon Storm and Defender 2, are mm. obviously, you can see it in their names, that they are a move away from the wackiness of the 80s. And you would, yeah. he talks a lot in his interviews about, and I, he doesn't really go into detail, I, suggest, I suspect he, he doesn't want to, about something which you know, he almost went out of business, left the industry in the early 90s. Yeah. And I mm-hmm. wonder if this, that those three games are him just accepting the fact that he couldn't, he couldn't make what he really wanted to make, what he had been making, and he had to go a bit more mainstream. Yeah, although at this point, and I, I don't know if this is what saved that from happening, and I, I hope it is, Lamatron exactly, 2112. Yeah. So he he made a game off his completely off his own back. It's a Robotron clone, but with a llama and some power ups and some other wrinkles and stuff. And it was shareware. Yes. So he went without a, a a publisher. He didn't even publish it himself as such. I mean, I suppose he effectively did, did, but he just distributed it and he wanted as many people to play it as possible. I remember him saying a few years later that uh, he. I think I think he said something. He would basically he, the title screen asked for a fiver, yeah. right? Which isn't a huge amount of money, and was a, the equivalent of buying a, a new boxed budget game for your Amiga or ST at the time, give or take a few quid. Um, and of course, many people, myself included, I'll admit, never made up a postal order and put it in an envelope and sent it to Jeff. And I, I'm sorry, Jeff, I should have done. Um, <laughs> Does he have a Patreon? I can pay him back now. Uh, but I did play Lamatron a lot. Of course, it got into many people's hands. And I think he said it effectively it paid his salary for yeah. the period for which he made it. <laughs> so even though, like, I don't know, half a million people played it or whatever, 
only 10,000 quid's worth of cash went his way, but that was equivalent to what he would have been earning making another game for Atari or whatever during that period. So it worked out quite nicely. And also, I think, because so many people played it, it was like a way of uh, re-advertising his particular brand to uh, what was at the time on the Amiga, particularly and the ST in the early 90s, a very active and passionate fan base. Yeah. Uh, looking at the title screen, Leon, if you had sent in your money, you would also have received a Zarjaz Llama poster, newsletter, and yeah. a copy of Andy's Attack. So Correct. it might be worth a lot more than five pounds a day, I'm just saying. <laughs> Making up a postal order was uh, was a real That was bath. the hard part. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Does anybody Great know game, just how bold that was in 1991? I mean, it's obviously before Doom mm. made Shareware uh... famous. I mean, just how ballsy a move was that? Oh, no. I don't know. I it was the a UK. I think it was a punt. Mm. Yeah. I mean, Commander Keen is 90. Yeah, mm. I remember the magazines dedicated to public domain software, and it just became, the shareware became a thing for about three or four years until the internet arrived uh, properly. I do remember there was that, that gap of time where people were trying to distribute these games or software, but they couldn't do it with an online means because the, the, didn't exist the technology or the infrastructure didn't quite exist yet. So I do remember, I don't think it's, I think it was a wise, it was one way of trying to self-publish Yeah, because you know, no one was going to you know, publish it, which is ridiculous because it's a phenomenal game. It's a great game. Yeah. Really, really I love Lamatron. It's yeah. a bit slow compared to Robotron now you look at it, but at the time it was, uh, it was, it, it, the fact that you had a three-way shot power-up yeah. made, made it so much more uh, accessible than the original Robotron. And it had all the wacky humour. It had levels with toilets in and all this stuff. It uh, swore the hell out of the screen when you died, which I'd completely <laughs> forgotten until I watched it the other day, which, of course, was something that he probably wouldn't have put in a boxed release game under the Atari label, but he could have you go, oh, when you, um, yeah. when you died in a, in a shareware game. I have very fond memories of this. Then we come to Tempest 2000. We've already talked about it a little, but essentially uh, this game was um, ended up being something as a of a poster child for this 64, not really, bit hardware, partially 64-bit hardware. Um, Aliens vs. Predator, Alien vs. Predator, I forget, um, was probably the kind of, uh, you know, the, the graphical tour de force. But in terms of... The game that got the reviews and the ones that ended up people. I remember when because the Jaguar, the Atari Jaguar, was such a flop. I remember HMV selling them off for I think it was forty quid a unit uh, toward the end of its life with a copy of Tempest Two Thousand. If only you could get and one I, for forty quid now. Right, absolutely. <laughs> but I know a lot of people at the time um, when this was happening. I guess late nineties. Uh, when they were selling them off, um, were just like, yeah, I'm going to buy one just so I can play Tempest 2000. I'll just make it my my Tempest 2000 <laughs> machine. I know Chris has a Jag. Um, yeah, you were uh, you were complaining about the uh, the controller, the hand <laughs> the hand pain from the controller. But was it worth it to go back and play Tempest 2000? I think so. I think it really does. Still, it it compares to quite well with TXK and and other you know and Tempest yeah. 4000. It really mm-hmm. does. There's the aspects in the visuals and like, yeah, it's still there. What isn't there, of course, is the fidelity and the frame rate, of course, mm. and uh, the amount of what's going on. But it's still, and the only way to really, I've only recently found this out, the best way to use a uh, Jaguar controller is on a table. You rest it on the table. Yeah. And then you, you just press it down and then it works much better. Still get hand cramps <laughs> quite that. 
<laughs> but um, still, still, um, uh, it really, I was like, I played it like an hour just before we started um, recording tonight. And uh, yeah, really, really fun game. Uh, one of the, one of the better titles on the Jaguar. Um, sure. You managed to get a Defender 2000 cartridge in your collection? No, <laughs> I don't think so. Ah, that's a shame. But I have another I, means of doing that. But anyway, I assume it's an enhanced uh, Defender Two. Another, well, it's another another evolution on from Defender Two, I guess. Yeah, it. I I remember being excited. I mean, it was the one Jaguar game I was excited to buy, right? Because I I think mm. I got my system in like July, summer '95, uh, when again it was selling really you know, a bargain rate, uh, but they were still making games for it. And this was the end. And yeah, it was, it was pretty disappointing because unlike Tempest 2000, where even though, you know, Tempest, I don't know if it's his best game or what is, is the one that I played an enormous amount of, as I said, right. In a, in a fairly, uh, uh, neuro malleable part of my life. Uh, and <laughs> the, the whole thing of, you know, seeing through the chaos, right, being a principal behind a lot of Jeff Minter games of like, you know, you get into the zone and then all this sort of, you know, uh, just overwhelming nonsense uh, just becomes sort of part of the flow. Uh, I think that game manages that well because he figures out, you know, one w another sort of key thing that reoccurs and occurs is him having to figure out ways to adjust for the fact that his most beloved arcade games for the most part do not have controllers uh that we have at home like uh yeah. centipede as yeah. you were saying with grid runner um and the addition of the jump power up uh is yes. i think brilliant and hilarious because it gives it makes that game playable at a harder level because you're not always you know the the issue with Tempest is once the guy gets the edge of the grid, uh, it's kind of pot luck mm. uh, if you're going to die or not. You know, maybe you can, but it's it's a very difficult skill at that point, a real spike. Uh, whereas turning it into, okay, every level you're just trying to get that third power up, or I think it varied a little, but like, and now you're just bouncing like a maniac and you never let go of that jump button. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> the, the entire screen is just going in and out as the, the techno is pumping. Uh yeah, it's a hilarious game. Uh, so what Tempest Four Thousand does, I can't. I don't know about Three Thousand. So when you're jumped, you don't score any points. Is that true mm. in Two Thousand? I don't think so. If it was, I'd never no. have gotten any points. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I played. I played the most um, Tempest X Three, which we talked about in our Tempest show, which is, uh, and and I didn't know this either. The reason it's called Tempest X Three uh and has a few changes compared to tempest 2000 is essentially so that atari as was then didn't have to pay jeff minter any money for releasing a version of tempest 2000 on the playstation uh which he wasn't obviously best pleased about uh i mean i still thoroughly enjoyed tempest x3 uh, i thought it was a you know a cracking game in its own right um but uh but yeah so i've recently only just bought tempest 4000 because um I heard a few bad things about it um, in terms of input latency and all this stuff. Um, but I bought it on PS4 for the, the run up to this show. And um, I don't think it feels quite as good as TXK to play. I'm not sure why. I think um, there is something about the, the character control, the, the weird yellow claw on Tempest 4000, which feels slightly sloppier than TXK to me. Um, but overall, the most of the Tempest goodness is still there in 4000. 
Um, I mean, for, for whatever reason, they decide, you know, they sell it at twenty four ninety nine. It doesn't seem to go on sale very much. And I think that's a, a barrier to some people for what, you know, looks like a, a, a kind of old game or whatever. But for me, I'd still say there is enough in there to, to warrant to warrant buying it on a on a well, current last gen system or whatever. No VR mode, is there? On 4000? Yeah. No, I don't think Je- so. Jeff says no. that he did create a VR uh, aspect for Tempest 4000, but for some reason oh, he, doesn't, uh, he doesn't know why that Atari <laughs> just refused to implement <laughs> it. So he says that he and Giles play it all the time, but nobody else can. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> Jesse's sad now. Don't uh, do it! <laughs> Jeff, if you're listening to this, can we have the code? Please, oh, Atari, Jesse. release it, please. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Um, probably the first and last ever mention of the Atari Falcon on the Kane and Rinse podcast was uh, it was a late kind of souped up ST variant, I think. Yeah. Um, apparently, he released a game called Llama Zap for that. Once again, <laughs> Jeff flogging the horse of not even, you know, just yeah. getting hold of a weird, weird format, which, you know, maybe they asked him. Maybe he just wanted yeah. to do it. Who knows? Probably, maybe he just yeah. wanted to get yeah. to grips with programming it. See, uh, Tempest 3000 came, we've mentioned. Uh, so the new one, for those who don't know, is a DVD player, set-top box type device that could also run games in theory, but only if you had geniuses to program the games. <laughs> I remember the thing about this was I wanted to play it, but obviously I wasn't quite a, a big enough Jeff fan to spend however many hundred pounds on importing this uh, this bizarre box. Um, there was all, There were also issues with the input device, I believe uh it did, did it have a dedicated controller or did you actually play this with a remote i can't mm. remember uh i have played it at an expo oh you have years right back can't remember what controller i was holding um no. but um it plays remarkably similar to 2000 let's just say that but it's uh sure yeah, um but, but i was marveling at the fact that i was playing a video game on a dvd player uh, well, I, I remember Edge <laughs> reviewing it, gave it a nine, and talked about how spectacular the visuals were for for two thousand for the year two thousand. Yeah, yeah. Um, which obviously you know the shine will have come off that, and probably the visuals on Tempest four thousand knock it into a cocked hat. But um, but at the time it was a desirable, if obscure. Thing. I was just just having a look at the the new one now. So yeah, so it wasn't just one device, was it? It was a technology that could be licensed. Yeah. So yeah. okay, yeah, so, like the three D O. Yeah, yeah. So there were different. Right controllers i think depending on the manufacturer. Okay. and it's just right. it's interesting isn't it mm. it's one of those things that you can sort of smirk at now and say it was weird but then of course what was everyone's first dvd player was probably a playstation 2 right too. yeah so the yeah. the convergence of yeah. games and dvd players was was a thing um just i yeah. guess the new one was sort of did it the wrong way around in that it was primarily a dvd did, player yeah, that could was... also play games whereas seemingly everyone wanted it yeah the other way around so grid runner plus plus is uh, we've talked about and it's out there now you can play it and enjoy it, it for should. free yeah. hover bother 2 grand theft flymo <laughs> i don't know what this i didn't know this existed until like a couple of days ago what what's the story here i've got this <laughs> hey i bought this from itch.io where it's still available oh for it's you. on there is it yeah you can just pay what you want and you can it just runs a very small file <laughs> runs as an excusable on your pc it's basically uh, just hover bother with sure with funnier sound samples and a little bit a little bit closer to the metal um 
things that happen. So the, the okay when the guys run after you, they're swearing at you, and right, you, you can kind of play fetch with the dog, and it, it is essentially it doesn't look too different to the C sixty four game. It's got a slightly upresed version of English Country Garden plays in the background. Awesome. Uh, it's more. <laughs> it's more hover. It's like a level pack for hover bother. If that's your thing. Okay. How did I not know about this? <laughs> The cover is exactly the same as the Commodore 64 cover, except with yeah. the words Commodore 64 crossed out <laughs> and Windows written on. And a Perfect. On there. But it still has like a price tag from Orbit Records of 750. And uh, yeah. I think it was originally going to be a pocket PC game. Yes, uh, that's right. So, so it has that kind of vibe. But yeah, uh, that looks fantastic. If it's been um, included in any one of Itch.io's charity bundles, we probably all own it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. Uh, so only one attempt at a sixth generation game, the game being Unity, not to be confused with the engine or Assassin's Creed Unity. Uh, this was being developed with Lionhead for the GameCube. Uh, Jeff was involved. It was featured on the uh, Edge magazine cover in February 2003, but the project slipped off release schedules and it was uh, announced as cancelled in 2004. Um Molyneux, Peter Molyneux was quoted as saying it was becoming increasingly apparent to us that we would not be able to finish Unity in an acceptable time frame. Uh, and there's something ironic about Peter Molyneux. <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, it's really fun to talk. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it, I suppose it is interesting that they, they crossed paths, right? Because yeah, obviously yeah. similar beginnings, but where, you know, Jeff Minter sort of just continued doing his own thing mostly on his own um for the you know most of his career you know Molyneux obviously sort of became head of a studio and then um sort of got sort of you know snake or self yeah sort of as, <laughs> as he as he tells it yeah. you know he sort of felt like he got sort of too high up in management and too far away from development and then sort of wanted to go sort of back yeah. down again and with you know mixed results um so it but yeah it's just interesting the different sort of trajectories they took despite being i suppose technically peers you know mm. it's a shame we never saw unity mm. i think uh the gamecube was a really capable lovely little box could have made some really fantastic looking minter graphics and um yeah who knows what what the gameplay would have been like well, yeah and it's just and it's I'm, fast i'm sad it doesn't and exist. it's just fascinating i mean obviously you know for all the games we've we've gone through like Jeff Mincer is, if nothing else, ambulatory, right? He's he's firing out several games a year at least. So what on earth was it about mm. Unity that made it this complete logistical impossibility? Yeah. I guess I'd love to know. <laughs> I, I'm That's just really noticing that I just want to know, this the only time, according to all the list of spoilers we're going ahead here, but I think he's, he's, um, he's ever released or tried to release a game on a Nintendo platform. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was talking about Switch development in a, a recent interview and he said uh, nothing against it at all. He loves the Switch, he loves the he loves the machine and he loves the platform, if you know mm -hmm. what I mean. He loves the tech and he loves loves how it works. He is concerned that uh his game would become one of those that I was kind of referring to mm -hmm. earlier just becomes another thumbnail on a store yeah, that gets yeah. 15 new releases a day. And because he, you know, his name has cachet with the likes of mm. us, but a lot of people, not so much. And mm. it could easily just, they could spend, you know, a year or whatever making a game and then it could just sink. Yeah. 
and and I don't think he can afford to do that. So, yeah. but he said it was he said he said it was on the cards. I think for him to you know take something to the switch, and I believe Tempest Four Thousand is coming out on Switch okay. soon. So even if even if he didn't, uh, I'm not sure if they were responsible for the conversion. It might be uh, one of the third party ones. They might have got one of the switch porting specialists in, hopefully, to keep the frame rate up <laughs> and all that stuff that you all the wizardry you need to do. Uh, as the switch, you know, kind of uh, ages in in the face of of more modern hardware, um, but hopefully it'll be a great port like uh, Tetris Effect is. Mm. And um, I just thought he could maybe do, in, encourage he could him. do Grid Runner and play it in Tate mode. That'd be nice. Yeah, yeah. pay money for be that. Great. Yeah, Jeff, if you're listening, this is another one for Yeah, definitely might try to make sure this podcast gets into into his ears. Um, so yeah, uh, we've kind of touched off most of the seventh generation uh, stuff already. Space Invaders Extreme, I've seen uh, credited to him, but actually uh, he didn't have anything to do with that game as such. Uh, he contributed the background visuals for the specifically for the Xbox 360 version. Um, the good thing is Space Invaders Extreme, uh, you can now play on lots of different formats. Uh, it's uh, it's widely available. and uh, But yes, if you get the 360 version and play it on whichever Xbox you want to, um, or hang on, I'm just... Is it backwards compatible? I can't remember now. I don't know. Some um, are, some aren't, but yeah, I do know. Uh, that, um, it, it, I can't yeah. remember if it's actually installed on my machine. If it is, if it's installed on my Series X, obviously it is backwards compatible. If it's still installed yeah. on my 360, it isn't. Um, so you'll need to check that out anyway. But uh, perhaps the biggest, biggest splash he made during this period was Space Giraffe 2008, uh, 2007 and then 2008 on the PC. I sent him a message the morning that was released via the the old Xbox system because I went to the the high school tables the leaderboards <laughs> of course and there he was and uh, soy <laughs> soy was up there there he was and um, just sent him a message saying basically just thanks mm-hmm. for everything you've ever done and just keep doing what mm-hmm. you're doing and I'm sure he didn't need to hear it he or see it he didn't reply but I just it felt good that I could just yeah, you know yeah. communicate in that way and um and yeah I played quite a lot of Space Giraffe went back to it recently. My high score is still there, still above yours. I was going to say, I, I seem um, to recall not coming anywhere close to yours because I, I, when I got my um, Xbox uh, Series S, um, I know obviously, so I sort of skipped the Xbox One, um, got the yeah. Series S, and I was like, oh my god, I can play Space Giraffe, and uh, yes, <laughs> you know, with the the sort of fake HDR, which on you know because of the way this this game's visuals are, yeah, like, actually really pops you know it's it's really cool yes um but yeah i mean just looking at your scores again i was like i could could delete them off my friends list <laughs> just to feel good about myself but I'll, uh... yeah i've i wanted to do that with uh jonathan edwards johnster <laughs> off off most of my xbla games but um yeah and, and i i don't think i have like i didn't play it to the extent that i got as good as i think i could have mm-hmm. done either um but it is a game it is a zone game we talked about the zone uh you can get there you can get to a point where the visual noise is part of the experience fades away, stops being a hindrance and becomes not a help, but something that you accept. If, if you are you know, fortunate enough to have working ears, you can use the audio to uh, learn about a lot of the, the hazards in the game. And although he claims that it is not a, te- a Tempest game, I can understand why everybody thinks that it is because mm. you still play <laughs> a ship that crawls around the top of a web that goes into a void and the enemies crawl up from the bottom. It is so obviously massively influenced by Tempest. Yeah. However, the 
probably the most significant wrinkle is that in all other Tempest games, including the original, you don't want things to get to the top because they grab you and pull you down into the abyss. And it is slightly nightmarish. I believe it came from Dave Toyer's nightmare. In Space Giraffe, you want things to get to the top of the grid because you bull them off. (laughs) Uh, And in a deeply satisfying sweep of the grid, you smash them all off. You get a cavalcade of mooing and your high score and multiplier goes up exponentially. And that is why Space Giraffe is a classic. Am I right? Yeah, Yeah. it's just the, it's splendid, well done, and all that. (laughs) It's just all there. And like when you you complete a level, you have achieved meh. There you go, well done. And it's just... Yeah, it does dress uh, you down as well. It really does. And it was a welcome, welcome and triumphant return. Uh, yeah, I really, really was. I was so happy to see it, and I, I got into it uh, despite many naysayers around me going, "You can't see what's going on." <laughs> be yelling, "That's the point." It's one that I, I don't know if any of you do this with films. I do it with Blade Runner twenty forty nine. I will, I will put it on sort of just before bed sometimes with, without, you know, with no intention of watching the whole thing. I'll watch up to the sort of rainy rooftop bit before he gets summoned to the police station. I'm like, right, that's cool, that's that's mm. enough. And this and that's kind of what I do with Space Giraffe. In that <laughs> I'll I will load it up with the intention of I think it's like level four, right? Where it's not it's not specifically scored this way, but certainly the the pace I play it at, it's whenever I get to level four, I think it's I think it's level four, Rivers of This, I think is the, the name. Um mm. and it's the soundtrack hits that one song that's quite i don't know it's less sort of aggressive than the others it's quite chilled um and it always that always feels like the first level where you know if i'm coming back to it after a some time away yeah. it's first level the first level where i'm like yes i remember this now i get the bullying mechanic i'm absolutely you know like bullying everything trying not you know like barely shooting any enemies <laughs> like this feels incredible and i and i kind of yeah i put it on just with a view to basically getting that far and then what happens after that doesn't really matter um there's something about just that transition through those first few levels and remembering how it works and it just clicking all over again it just feels incredible yeah um i mean there's that and there's the you know when it starts introducing the flowers i think that really that's yeah. like my favorite example of the you know the yeah seeing through the visuals and just sort of um you know yeah. using the force right like you the way that the the tone of them sort of changes as you're shooting them back down the fact that the, mm. the the pitch drops, right? So you don't need to see them to know how tall they are, um, and it's and that's that just sort of typifies like his, you know, definitely approach to these things and that and how you you learn this, or, you know, you gain this ability to not have to look at it so much, um, and I can see why people don't get that, and, and like and as you say, oh, yeah. uh, you know, this does rely on you having good hearing. It's not. You know, mm. if people are saying, like, you know, from an accessibility point of view, I can't see what's going on. It's like, well, there's there's other accessibility reasons why you might still not be able to get on with it, even if even if yeah. you know, I'm saying, ah, oh, well, the visuals aren't necessarily the point. Um, that there are definitely still barriers there, but it's just, yeah, it's just incredible sound design, and just unparalleled. I uh, I had a conversation with Bennett Foddy this week, just because it figured. Mm-hmm. Bounce, you know, see what he had to say about Minter. And he, <laughs> he said Space Draft is his favorite game. Mm-hmm. And we actually got on this subject. And 
uh, I was trying to figure out if Bennett thought that Jeff Minter himself could play the game as well with his eyes closed as with his <laughs> eyes open. Yeah. And what Bennett came down on was, I think he could do it if he covered his glasses in butter. <laughs> right? Maybe not eyes right. closed, but right, like that would be enough. Like, like if he had eye spots like a paramecium, that's kind of all he would need along with the, you know, human ability to hear. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, this was not a game I've never, unfortunately owned an Xbox. So I kind of missed out on, or Windows uh, computer. So I've kind of uh, missed out on this at the time, but this was one mm. I played a couple of times at the game center this week. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's interesting that he would try to disavow Tempest. Cause I think that's just more about him getting tired of, of dummies yeah, yeah. Uh, of not understanding that yeah i mean the bowling is sort of it's like in hearts you know now you don't want to take the cards and that <laughs> totally flips your relationship to the game right it is not whist it is not it is a totally different game that feels totally different uh and that is how folk culture works and minter's misfortune is being in a capitalist hellscape uh being a folk essentially a you know classic uh minor folk genius artist who should Troubadour. by all rights have you know the a nordic welfare state would give him a stipend like a you know important local poet or something or it's like here's so fifty thousand euros a year do your thing <laughs> yes you're a part of the culture that makes us proud mm -hmm. in a better yeah. world yeah. yeah beautifully said yeah. i'm just remembering uh the yeah as i was when i was playing it again uh in lead up to to this show it's not just about because obviously the the, the picking picking up and playing a tempest game for me is not difficult because i've been playing those games since they began on and off and the actual you know spinning around the top of the grid and shooting the stuff as it comes towards you replay relearning that stuff does not take a, a while but it's the wrinkles and the 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 subtleties of the multiplier and stuff that mm always take a take a while with with space giraffe the the fact that um now i see i can't even describe exactly or remember how it works but there's uh there's stuff to do with those flowers um you farm them right that, uh yeah you farm the flowers and you want them to climb up to a certain point but not too Is high it, yeah if they get too high and, then they shoot at you and then and then you you lose any of the potential points you could have got from them but equally if you shoot them all the way down then they're destroyed and there's I don't know if you get no points or that's just not it. as many as you can get from sort of maintaining yeah. them. Yeah, that's right. And then you've got the sneeze bonuses, <laughs> which uh, so you actually want to finish a level when there's loads of enemy shots coming yeah. towards you because you fly through them uh, rather than them killing you in your invincible state between levels. Um, and you get a sneeze sample noise for every one. And there's a there's an achievement tied to getting is it like nine in one go or something like that it's all very odd um your giraffe does not look like a giraffe <laughs> no. either really i mean not that i can it does a bit more in the pass, bonus no. levels right there's the sort of giraffe texture mm. to it kind of but that's about it <clears throat> i would point out it's a space giraffe <laughs> yeah. good point good point yeah that's, that's all that needs to be said yeah so next came, really, the Minotaur Project from 2011 onwards. I don't know exactly what date the later ones came out, but um, Jeff set himself the task, I guess, of uh, making a game that, uh, a modern game, but that represented the, the look and feel of a game that 
came originally on a legacy system, working his way through the Atari 2600, the Intellivision the Spectrum, 8-bit Atari, Namco System 86 Arcade, uh, onto Namco Galaga platform, uh, one that looked like uh, Deflex, or was basically Deflex remake, and uh, Goat Up 2. Um, so did anyone kind of follow the... Uh, I, I'm going to completely confess, I, I wasn't really that cognizant of this whole venture 10 years ago. I definitely ago. played Goat Up, but that's the only <laughs> one I can remember, which seems strange because I, I definitely thought I was paying attention at the time, but clearly not. Um, but yeah, I remember enjoying it. So these it, are PC games, really? Because I don't remember seeing them, I must confess. But yeah. Were they... I'm a bit confused. Are they like... Because I know about the the minor, uh, minor core arcade volume one, which I've been playing a lot on the PS4. But uh, are the let me explain? Are they all like PC games? I think they, these were all iOS. Quite, they, they were mobile games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All mobile. Right. Right. Yeah. Totally I played Five a Day. Right. I did play Five a Day. I remember, right. um, which was yeah, yeah. typically loony. <laughs> that was the one I hadn't heard of. I did play the. Yeah. I want to go back to these, uh, but unfortunately, they did mm. not make the you know sixty-four bit transition. Mm. Uh, but uh, I did hear about these because you know they're based on these retro things, and uh, uh, up was the Spectrum, and you know I was interested yeah. in that at the time, especially when I was just kind of learning about the UK side of things. Uh, and two of them, uh, Rescue and, and Godup, are in that um, Minotaur arcade that you can get in VR. Okay. Uh, and unfortunately, mm. the PSVR one for some reason I couldn't get the sound to work. Oh. I didn't play too much of it, but uh, it did remind me of of playing them back in the day. And they're, yeah, they're. I think they're pretty solid, and I would like to see them. Uh, again, I think it's economics that prevents them. You know, like porting to sixty four bit is often even more expensive than porting to Android if you hire someone. Right. Um, so I think it's just that, but I think. They there there's an exuberance to them because at that point the the system is very exciting, right? This new mobile thing has its ups and the everything getting priced to a dollar, which kind of drives him out of there. because uh, yeah. he's not willing to do free to play or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that that there's an exuberance of that early period, but also of again, like the touchscreen isn't the Jeff Minter's another way the world has failed Jeff Minter is that <laughs> nobody makes a paddle. <laughs> like you just can't get Unless a you... that. You can get a steering wheel. You can get a chair that moves with your VR helmet for two thousand dollars. You cannot get a paddle. Wait, who makes a paddle? Uh, the, it's you can get one with the Taito Egret Two Mini. Um, ah. Or, or you can you can seek out the. Do you remember when Poochie Karat came out on uh, PlayStation? Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. You can. You can. You, they, they released it with a paddle, even in PAL territories. Imagine that. But you're right. Overall, and, it's and not easy. Overall, the paddle is underrepresented in modern. <laughs> yeah. Culture. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Uh, at least for at least for uh, you know the value of what Minter's about, which is the. I mean, I, I love his games, but uh, I may the the truly zenest game I've ever played is Kaboom, and Kaboom is way oh, dumber yeah. than the dumbest Jeff Minter. <laughs> But it is that paddle, like absolute. uh, There's a book by David Sudnow about uh, he's a jazz pianist and he writes a book about becoming good at breakout uh, called Mm. Pilgrim in the Micro World that was recently reprinted as one of the boss fight books. 
who I think may have a humble bundle still going on when this goes out. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it's a fascinating book about like the phenomenology of that kind of flow state. Um, and yeah, like the to get back to what, you know the touchscreen on iOS, it's not that, but I did play a few breakout like games on iOS where you know the the level of fluidity and control if you can get over the annoyance of constantly touching a screen at your finger in an action game uh i can see the appeal and it really did come through the controls of those games there's something to be said here for preservation as well because don't yeah. these games were all you said they're all mobile games and unless i'm mistaken i well they're certainly not no longer on the app store so no, i don't yeah. think there's any way in which if you wanted to go back and play these games, save for the two that were released for the PS4, I don't think you can play them anymore, which is a real shame. Isn't there... There's a real issue with this. Some yeah. there are Android versions you can just download straight from the website, okay. but I'm not I expect sure so. which. Yeah. I think I know Gridrun is one of them, but... Yeah. Okay. But yeah, it's yeah. not ideal. Sounds likely. <clears throat> no. No. And Jesse, the audio issue on the PS4 version, I had exactly the same thing, and the irony of me... Advising how to fix an audio issue after earlier tonight is not lost on me. But if you <laughs> if you go into the pause menu, I had exactly the same issue. And there's a pause menu in game. When I first installed this, for some reason, the sound on both games was set to to mute. So I just had to turn it up in the pause menu. <laughs> oh, okay, I'll look for that. Thank you. <laughs> Curious. Goat up is well worth playing mm. with sound on. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, yes. Uh, what need. is and who has played Minotaur Rescue VR on the Rift? <laughs> um, I think I that is that, just um... that first game, that first iOS game. In like, oh, like okay. the the the, yeah. the two on the PSVR, sure. they're not yeah, they're yeah. true VR games, but they're VR games like I don't know on PS streams. There's a VR like you can stand in front of a Space Invaders cabinet and play Space Invaders, uh, and it is different from just like. You know, playing Space of Arizona on a flat screen, but it's not, it has not been transfigured for VR, yeah. if you know what I mean. Now we have to talk about Polybius because uh, I feel like this game has not been played by enough people. Mm. It is a uh, a game based on an urban myth, although one that uh, Jeff, in the name of um, promotion, claimed to have uh, sampled <laughs> for himself. His, he has no, since uh, said could not no, remember any of it though. But. Yes, that's right. It was it was a good it was a good yarn um, yeah. to to yeah. So uh, we we haven't got time to cover the the original Polybius because it's I mean there's some great videos on YouTube talking about the myth, the legend of Polybius. In brief, it was supposedly an arcade game that was uh, put into certain arcades in America by gov by the government to uh, render young people into some kind of horrific negative trance state yeah which which sounds <laughs> it was um, like this <laughs> go on sorry sorry i was gonna say it, it sounds, no, sounds I was gonna say... Uh, like horrendous and unbelievable but actually in the you know list of weird horrendous things the cia yeah. have admitted to doing it wouldn't even make the top 20 yes so. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely yeah. it's a yeah, very good it's, point it's uh it's basically an lsd experiment in the in the field mm -hmm. that's <laughs> uh and has anyone read the novel lucky wander boy by uh db weiss later showrunner of game of thrones no 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 uh, it's basically kind of a it's it's in some ways not a great novel but it is a very interesting book to read if you're interested in classic video games okay. uh mm. because it is the the macguffin essentially is a game very much like this one, except Japanese. Mm -hmm. uh, and right. he gets into kind of the, the 
it's it feels like that db weiss played a lot of jeff mentor games back in the day uh and or like you know other games that uh were were about that kind of just absolute overload in france state mm -hmm. cool you your references are always the best see <laughs> like the, mo the most highbrow cultured and uh and i don't think the game of thrones guy's novel when he was like all oh, right all he right. did get he, okay. he did get signed to write the halo movie but that never happened Nah, what the um the blomkamp one i guess <laughs> yeah there's so many i've lost count now how many <laughs> Things are going to be yeah. halo, but yeah. Anyway. There's a Polybius uh, game by Jeff Minter. Uh, not, yeah. Uh, I guess the idea that it it's it sort of it, it could be the yeah. He sort of says yeah. It's like this is these are the bits that I remember from playing the the original Polybius machine. But of course, actually, it's uh it's um it's an outside of the tunnel or sometimes inside of the tunnel game. It's both. Um, so it reminds me a bit of um Stun Runner and uh, F Zero x and gx in some ways uh it's uh it's mechanically both incredibly simple but also i every time i play this and i i have been back to this a lot since 2016 when it came out i always think am i missing something mechanically <laughs> here i still don't yeah. really understand yeah. what what the kind of mechanics are but i know that i quite enjoy it basically keep going through the gates don't hit the sides and just hold down the fire button. <laughs> yeah. uh, and and the visuals get more and more insane. I've never played this in VR on PSVR or Rift. Oh, I've wow. just played it the regular way. And that's enough for my brain. <laughs> like yeah. it really, it really does get I mean, the, the sensation of speed, even yeah. just on a monitor is incredible. Um, yeah. I, I haven't yeah. tried this in VR. It only occurred to me just before recording this that I could now if I wanted to. And I'm probably going to as soon as we're finished um you have to sign you have to sign off two disclaimers on the uh because i remember before you're allowed to play i went to is your wife a notary because one of the people in the room has to be a notary well i remember because i saw this at an expo it was oh which one was it i can't remember uh play expo i think um yeah and they were just the people demoing it were just kind of like yeah basically our orders are if anyone is sick we have to pack up and leave because um, <laughs> this was back in the day when I think PSVR was, I think wasn't technically out yet. And it was still, yeah, mm. the, the general public wasn't really sure how they were going to take to VR. So it was still this sort of this unknown at the time, I think. This is the yeah, thing about was... the game though, right? I mean, it, it's, it's so incredibly quick. I mean, literally, I every time I play this in VR, I come away just feeling assaulted. <laughs> but yeah. I absolutely love it. But I don't suffer terribly with motion sickness in VR, but no. play, playing something like Wipeout in VR really does oh, get yeah, me. Yeah. But but with this, for some, I don't know how they do it, but I don't feel any kind of motion sickness at all. It, they're <laughs> doing something clever, it seems. Mm. One thing I really wanted to say about this game that is that I've never understood. Like I hardly ever see anyone playing it on my friends list, um, and I realise it's a bit of a it's a bit of a niche thing to say the least. I'm glad so many of us here have played Polybius. It got only seven critic reviews on the internet, on the whole wow. internet. Some games, when they come out now, like, you know, a big AAA title, get well over 100 reviews. Now, I understand maybe, you know, I think this is self-published and whatever mm -hmm. else, and maybe just didn't send out code to that many places. Maybe you didn't think there was any point. But the reviews it did get, and it didn't even, um, I don't, I'm not sure it even got enough separate reviews to kind of qualify to for like end of year rankings and stuff like that 
because the reviews it did get were really good. Yeah. Like it's got a hundred percent critic recommendation on Open Critic, and its average score is eighty six percent. Yeah. Um, it got a nine from Game Central, a nine from Push Square, a nine from Hardcore Gamer, eights from Destructoid and Digital Chumps, and a recommended from the excellent Christian Donnell on Eurogamer, and yet. Nobody ever talks about this game in my experience until this evening. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I'm the only person on my Steam friends list who has it. I mean, I should add you guys, right. I guess. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I would like to. I, I've never read an, an interview with uh, Mizuguchi, the the Res and Tetris Effect mm-hmm. fella, mm. but I I have to imagine Minter is a big influence on him in some way, or he mm. encountered his stuff. But agreed, it yeah. I do feel like. Um. It's it's a very different aesthetic, and and for whatever reason, Mizuguchi's, which is in many ways maybe less assaultive, uh, and less yeah. idiosyncratic, and more mm-hmm. um, like you're in a really nice '90s rainforest cafe, uh, <laughs> you know that. Uh, and and Sean, you've played uh, Res Infinite, in yeah, Europe, yeah, yeah, right. So mm. I think it'd be in, yeah. Comparing the two is really interesting because there's a very similar synesthetic aesthetic, but obviously they have. What I get, I don't know. It's like Pink Floyd and uh, Camper Van Beethoven covering Interstellar Overdrive. I don't know. Mm. Just two oh, very yeah. different aesthetics, but that. but in the same. Yeah, I figured Leon would appreciate that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's it's funny that Polybius. I got it because you know I heard it was coming out and I was very excited. I've gotten the PSVR. I really like Res Infinite. I really like Thumper. Um, you know, that, that seemed to be the type of game that I was really going to gravitate towards on the system. And, uh, I got pretty into it. It has, I don't know if this is the first game like this. Maybe Space Ref has this, and I don't know if he invented it. Maybe one of you does, but the, you can restart the game at the last level you finished with the number yeah. of yes. lives yeah, you yeah. went into that level with. Yeah. That's right? it. Is that yeah. a Minter original? Um, yeah. no, well, it's based on um, Atari's old coin-ops used to have a similar function. So I think he could mm. sort of extrapolated it out of Tempest. But it's not, right. it's not quite the same. It's more, it was more like um, a set of four or whatever choices, but he's made it more granular in that it's based on the player's actual progress. It's cheating yeah, though, it right, works. to do that. Yeah. Well, it's progressing. No, of course. You can play you can play pure mode if you right. if you don't like yeah. it. You yeah. go you yeah. go back and forth. And I I really like it gives it an interesting curve where it the problem with uh with just progressing for the sake of progress is then you go into the next level with one life. Uh and then you're not going to progress anymore. So it does require yeah. you to not just finish the level but you know not take too many hits. Yeah. Uh but and then right and you can go to pure mode and try to get a high score from level 1. And and that was a very inviting system. I've gotten to like level 35 of that game, despite not being incredibly good at it. But, you know, mm. uh, and again, my only possible complaint about that game is there's no paddle. <laughs> um, right. Like just literally like the, the, the going through the gates is too high stakes because if you touch the sides of them, you do lose a life basically. Uh, and if I had that granular kind of instantaneous kaboom level of control, I'd be okay with those stakes, but it does prevent me from like, from the game going from like a nine to a 10 in my head, uh, is, is, and, and again, I think I, I really look forward to what he can do in VR in the future, because I think those sorts of controls, you know, more 
granular and interesting controls are becoming more standard. Which brings us all the way up to Moose Life, his most recent game. And I, again, I, I blame the lack of publicity for this game for the fact that I know so little about mm. it. I would have, I would have day one it if I was even aware it was a thing, mm. but now I am. Mm. But I had to research a podcast about the creator to find out that this game was <laughs> out there and it's been out there for a couple of years, nearly a year and a half. Again, it has solid reviews, maybe not quite up there with Polybius, but Christian Donlan again recommended it on Eurogamer. And, um, you know, I know a lot of games come out these days, but um, but yeah, this is this has now gone on my wish list. But I'm um, um, yeah, apologies for to listeners for me not getting around to playing this. Has anyone managed to play some Moose Life? I have. Good. Um, doesn't work on a PS5, oddly enough. Ah, don't know why. But, oh, it's um, not backwards compatible. Ah, nope, or forwards nope. compatible. Uh, or, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, good point. Yes. So, which well, is annoying because. Yeah. My PSVR is hooked up to my PS5, not my yes, PS4. Yes, yes. Yeah. So I can't really play it VR as I'd want to. I'd have um, to play this in the lounge or on my PC. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I, uh, yeah, really, really, it's, it's how can I put this? It uses a flip where you can go to the ceiling or to the floor. And you are, um, are shooting things as you go and you, you control the rate at which you go forward. You propel yourself into the screen, uh, and uh, there's power-ups you can pick up, uh, but there's no gates to go through, but a lot of enemies, and you are rescuing sheep. Of course. Lots and lots of sheep. And they, they follow you around, and you are you are celebrated for picking up as many sheep as you do. I like the sound of um, it. It's, it's, it's a fabulous thing, which is sadly marred, and... Uh, for some reason, why well, you know, for some reason, what am I talking about? I still have my PS4. Of course I do. So I'm able to play it. But uh, yeah, it's um, it, 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 it's a thing to behold. I highly recommend it. Anyone else played it? Yeah, I I also did not hear about it when it came out, despite I, no. I did admittedly, uh, unfortunately, stop paying as much attention to PSVR once I got a Quest because mm-hmm. I'm a lazy person <laughs> who, uh, you know, doesn't want to set up a camera. Uh, but um i picked it up this week and i've played a couple of about two hours worth a couple of sessions uh yeah i really like it i i I very much like that it has a very different like uh polybius is about essentially it is a press your luck game about going as fast as possible Mm -hmm. um and this is kind of chiller right you're controlling your pace you can also move backwards which is a little dangerous because you're kind of on a uh, almost defender like wraparound loop so you know an enemy could be behind you and you don't want to back into them um, but it's not go, 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 go in the same way, but it's somewhat frenetic and right. And it, and it has that flipping, um, mechanic that we saw in, what was it? Ancipital, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but also feels a little influenced by Terry Kavanaugh's, uh, VVVVV. Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if Kavanaugh, you know, like super hexagon feels Minter influenced yeah. as well. That kind of. Um, so yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if there's some sort of cross pollination there. And that's one thing that, um, yeah, it makes me very excited to see whatever he does next, because it feels like VR, especially again, with controllers becoming, this is again, a, a, the, a joystick game, uh, which feels like less of a problem than with Polybius because it, it feels more natural to play this game in that way. Um, but, uh, you know, just imagining what he would do with motion controls or something that just has that level of granularity that you get in a classic arcade mm. game because that's like the only bottleneck, you know, between him and, you know, the 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 flow nirvana he is seeking for everybody. 
Well, that brings us to the end of our run through of Jeff's incredible career. And we got one more forum post from Alex79, who says, whilst I was aware of the name back in the 80s, I never actually played a Jeff Minter game until Space Giraffe came to the 360. I really enjoyed it. And the visuals and soundtrack instantly transported me back to the sorts of parties I'd go to as a teenager. <laughs> it was very similar to Tempest, though. Another one I remember enjoying was TXK on the Vita. Again, very similar to Space Giraffe and therefore Tempest. And I wasn't overly surprised when I heard that Atari were threatening some sort of legal action due to the similarities. There's a fine line between homage and plagiarism, and it sounds like Atari were not entirely convinced Minter was on the right side of it. Regardless, he's a very unique games developer with a very distinct style. As long as he's making games, I'll give them a go. Uh, if you hear about them, I guess, Alex. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Llama Soft, as we said, were contacted by the legendary Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails, and uh, he used the visuals from Polybius as the basis for the video to the song Less Than, which was released in a few years ago on the 13th of July. That's on YouTube, of course. <clears throat> and uh, I spotted this at the time, and I was very happy to see it. If you played or watched charlie brooker's interactive netflix film black mirror bandersnatch yes. which came out in december 2018 uh, based around the 1980s video game industry in the uk minter appears in a cameo as jerome f davis the author of the titular bandersnatch who murdered his wife <laughs> so uh unsurprisingly we've run relatively long so if you could each keep your summaries regarding jeff's life and work and it, what it means to you pretty brief but uh but encapsulate it nonetheless let's start with uh, chris O. jeff is uh, a as a phrase that's often used abused but a bit of a national treasure in my mm. view mm -hmm. and i think we it's wonderful that he's kept going and i hope he continues to do so despite everything, despite the fact it releases games so prolifically to the point where like, oh, there's another, another one? <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's great and sad that that happens. We need to keep our eye on it. And we all, all of us, have responsibility to push the word out there. We're doing a good job here. But yeah, Jeff, thanks. Please carry on doing the crazy stuff that you do because you make the world a better place for it. Well, well said, Chris. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, exactly. As I'd like to say, uh, I'd like to echo the sentiment to that XBLA message I sent to to Minter 15 years ago when Space Giraffe came out saying thank you, as Chris said. And yeah, just keep doing what you're doing. I love the fact that he is so he was, you know, came out kind of so fully formed um, as uh, as a creative mind and as a personality from my early, earliest experiences, which were mid eighties, he'd already been going several years at that point. Um, you know, as most game developers did, bedroom, bedroom coders started with some clones of other people's work and then started to branch out. But actually the things that move him and motivate him, inspire him are still the same things. Uh, I guess I, I feel like a kindred spirit in that way, in that I, I still love most of the same things and I'm passionate about most of the same things I was as a, as a teenager, I kind of worked out what I liked and, that, and uh, that hasn't changed much. So, uh, so I sort of, uh, I can empathize with that aspect and yeah. Um, watching him doing talks and saying at the end, you know, still very enthusiastic. My whole life has been a series of projects and long may that continue. And, um, yeah, so say all of us and, uh, yeah, I do hope Jeff gets to hear this 
um, because yeah, I think he's possibly, especially you know, looking at the the lack of uh, reviews and stuff of some of his recent work. Um, I think he's uh, not getting as much attention as this great British auteur designer deserves. Jesse. You know, on the last show, it was almost the full turn. We were talking about Cliff Johnson, and I mm. compared him to Minter because I'm like, mm. they're totally different, do totally different interests, but they're both actual artists. And I don't know if video games are able to deal with that in certain ways. Uh, and I think that's part of the problem. But when I think of him, I think almost more of artists as kindred spirits in other fields like indie comics. I think of Gary Panter or uh, Al Columbia and, you know, music. I think of like Jad Fair or Captain Beefheart um, of just people who are absolutely uncompromising about their vision, but also want to entertain you. You know, it, it is there's a mm. genuine joy there that they're trying to transmit. It is not just about pulling you into their head. Um and yeah, I think he's a genius. I mean, he does his thing and it is perfectly him. And I I think his best game could still yet to become, as I was saying. And I mm. think that it's remarkable that I think he is very prescient. The last thing I'll say is that as a six-year-old game developer is is a pretty nice thing that he could he could freaky Friday with a 25-year-old intern at Baby Castles <laughs> uh, and not miss a yeah. step. Like he would just do his thing and everyone would be like, you're cool, man. That's cool. And life would carry on pretty much as before. I mean, you'd need to get a sheep and all that, but you know what? <laughs> Amazing. Uh, Chris Worthington. Yeah. So I'm a proud member of the inverted commas retro gaming community. But what, what really winds me up about certain members of that community are those that say every game released after 1997 is rubbish or every game <laughs> from the PS1 onwards is, is rubbish. That's patently not true. You go to expos and, and, and it's very interesting. You hear developers, really interesting guys, talking about making games on, on, on the old systems and how things were so much better back then because there were limitations and it was, uh, it was, it was like the real, the real days back then. What's so refreshing about Jeff Minter for someone who was there at the start is he's so he's he's just as excited about new technology mm. as he was about seeing that Commodore pet for the first time. There's a childlike enthusiasm that you hear come through when he speaks. Before he starts his presentations, he looks a little awkward and a little shy, mm. a little sure of himself. And then as soon as he starts talking about making games, he comes alive. And he, and he stares at me, listening to quite a few of his talks in, in preparation for this. Every time I switch off one of his talks, I go and play one of his games. Because he, he has that infectiousness about the way he talks about just generally games in general. And I wish, I wish other members of the retro community could see that games aren't rubbish. Any game after made after 2000 isn't rubbish. Hmm. There's so much to be excited about now and in future. And I, I totally agree with Jesse. I think that Jeff Minter's best game is still to come. I think they're getting better. And I think they're not really aging now. I mean, if you look hmm. at Space Giraffe, it still looks incredible because of the abstract art. And I mean, it didn't look brilliant back in 2007 by, by the state of the art. So games hmm. like that, I think, age really well. I think Jeff's games will age really well. And I think the best the best is still to come. So I wish him a very happy birthday. And I, I can't wait for his uh, PS5 debut. Nice. 
And let's wrap up with Sean. I mean, yeah, just to reiterate what Chris has just said, like he, Jeff speaks beautifully about his very clear love of making games because to him it's this act of pure alchemy. It's creating something out of nothing. He types things in on a screen and then it becomes this thing that people, you know, think, you know, people sort of feel and, and respond to. Um, his His mastery of that, you know, those sort of, like the kinesthetic um, side of things is just absolute. Um, like I don't, you know, I'm not really a shoot 'em up guy. I don't, you know, the, the few shoot 'em ups I do play, I don't play to to finish them or to get good scores. But Jeff Minter's games, I can play just for the way they make me feel, um, which is unique to him. That you know, that you know, flow, zen, groove, whatever you want to call it. Um, he's just an absolute master of it. Um, yeah, happy birthday, man. <laughs> Lovely stuff. Uh, thank you so much, Chris, Jesse, other Chris. Uh, do you want to plug yourself and your stuff? Yeah, thanks, Leo. So people can hear me talk about old games on the Retro Asylum magazine style podcast. You can go in almost as long as Kane and Rins, not quite, I think. Kane and Rins is just a little <laughs> older. Uh, and then more modern and more middle-aged games, as we say, over on the Playthrough podcast. And you can follow me if you want to on Twitter. Although I'm not really as interested, nowhere near as interested as the Stinky Ox himself. <laughs> I'm at Retro Clarence on Twitter. Thanks. And Sean. Hello. Uh, I am part of the Computer Game Show, which you can find at tcgs.co in your favourite web browser. Um, we are a podcast. Um, we also do a fair bit of Twitch streaming. Um, I would plug the live event, but it's gone and sold out within a week. Not to boast or anything. Wow! Um, I was about to ask you to plug yeah. that, but that's a that's a nice little. Like you get a brag about that yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah. So um, yeah, very. Oh, that's exciting. amazing. That's because that's that you know we've been asked many times when why live events. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the fears is that no one wants to come. So you've got that <laughs> security now that it's. Well, all I say good. that. I mean, I've been looking at happen. the. Uh, people who are hoping to go to Glez Games, which is, I think, tonight as we record this, and a lot of them are uh-huh. backing out because they've tested positive or they're just a bit anxious, et cetera. So, yeah, I mean, you know, we've got yeah. a few months yet, so we'll we'll see. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm sure it'll be grand mm. and fantastic. Mm-hmm. I wish I'd got, got off my ass quicker. <laughs> but anyway, uh, TCGS, long live it, etc. cetera. Uh, if you follow us both on social media, you'll see occasionally we have beef <laughs> all in the name of band theatrics maybe uh, yeah thank you also to editor jay for editing and putting together this uh, slightly different format show hope you've enjoyed it listeners thank you to our correspondents and to you for listening next time in issue 511 you have to cooperate in it takes two
are the four doors on the left side of the aircraft. And the four doors on the right side of the aircraft. Fine, 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 fine.